Welcome to uh, Game and Watch with Aaron and James, the show where we talk about games that we've been gaming and movies and TV shows that we've been watching. I am Aaron, joined as always by my host, by James, who I you make it sound like I'm your host. Uh, I, I imagine like you're we we exist in like a, a symbiotic like yeah relationship. I'm your host body. Yeah, you're like the host. I'm like the venom symbiote. Yeah, um, and and you're you've been a very good host to me. So. Funny you say that. I watched Venom for the first time a couple nights ago. You know, I still have not seen it. I, um, I would have been fine never seeing it. Okay, I am excited about the sequel just because uh, I, I'm excited to see what Andy Serkis does, uh, and I love Woody Harrelson. Me too. Um, I, I Carnage is one of my favorite. Yeah. Like so ever. I so. I am on I'm on board for for the sequel, but I, I figure I have to kind of watch the first one at some point. So. I'll probably do that this month. Yeah. What a tangent yeah. this has been. It sure has been because we're not talking uh, about Venom or Carnage. Not even close, really. No, no. I mean, some Carnage takes place here. Also, I think Annie Wilkes would be a great host for Carnage. Yes. Um, let's do that, Cross. That'd be terrifying. Yeah. Um, but today we are continuing our series, uh, our summer series of games and uh, films that the other person has not seen. Um, and this week it is my uh, choice for a movie, um, and I have selected the psychological thriller *Misery*, uh, directed by Rob Reiner, which James has never seen before. I have never seen it, or now now I have. Well, now you have. Well, yes. now I have. Yes. And uh, we'll we'll get into it, but for some reason I, I can't get over the fact that this is a Rob Reiner movie. I yes yep um and so let's just jump straight into the development yeah. of it so this movie came out um uh November 30th 1990 uh the it is based on the novel Misery of the Same Name by Stephen King uh that novel came out in I believe 87 so the film came out really only three years after the novel um the novel was a, a pretty big commercial success uh we'll talk a little about the movie's success um and we'll talk generally about the novel maybe sort of at the end when we talk about what, what works and what doesn't we can kind of do book novel comparisons uh later um because i don't like doing that uh, i like evaluating films on their own merits and not comparing them to their source material i've never even read the novel it's uh it's also very very good uh it's it's different in some ways okay um, so Andrew Scheinman uh, read the novel um, on a plane uh, and he was a film producer. Also, I did a little background information about him. Um, he was like a professional tennis player as well and just led a very weird, interesting life. Hmm. Um, before so? he became, well, being a professional tennis player is pretty interesting when then you later become a movie studio executive, right? Ah, that's, just a, um, <laughs> that's just another Wednesday. I mean, in, in La La Land, who even knows, right? Yeah. Um, I just thought that was interesting. But he was a big fan of the novel and suggested that uh, Castle Rock Entertainment uh, produce the film. Um, he suggested to his friend Rob Reiner, who directed Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Stand By Me, A Few Good Men, um, and then tapped William Goldman, who wrote the film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, as well as the novel The Princess Bride, uh, to write the script. Who... Reads a Stephen King novel and says, "Get me Rob Reiner. Get Rob Reiner on the horn. I gotta talk to him because he's the one for this." So let's yeah let's explain that, that to me. Yeah. So um, I when we talk about the history of the film, um, I have an extensive history with this film. I uh, bought it, the DVD of this movie way back in the day and still own it. 
on the DVD, they have a lot of special features, which are kind of quaint and cute. Um, and one of them is about uh, the making of the film and kind of why Rob Reiner uh, took this project and kind of his approach to different shots and things. Um, and he just wanted to do something different, uh, right? If you look at all those films, um, you know, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Stand By Me, If You Could Mend, they're, each one of those is very much its own genre. Like Princess Bride is very much like a fantasy, like a quirky fantasy. When Harry Met Sally is very much a straight up rom-com. Stand By Me is very much like a coming of age, kind of dark, more dark, mature thing. And A Few Good Men is obviously, you know, a legal kind of thriller. Right. So every single one of those hits was entirely a different genre for him. And uh, I believe that he wanted to continue that. So he selected Misery because it was more horror. It was more thriller. Um, which was sort of outside of his wheelhouse. Well, so so you answered the or you you answered a question I didn't ask, which is why did Rob Reiner want to do it? That you didn't answer the question as to why would this guy say Rob Reiner is the man to direct this movie? And I I know, and the only thing I can possibly think of is that he already had done Stand by Me, another Stephen King adaptation. So yes, they were just well, like, okay, maybe he can do another one. It's a completely different type of movie, though. Well, but I mean, honestly, I, I don't know fully, but I get the impression that these three like collaborated a lot because I think on Princess Bride alone, all three of them kind of work together. Um, if I were Andrew Scheinman uh, and I see Rob Reiner producing like hit after hit after hit and all these different genres, I, I think I would just out of curiosity kind of want to know like, hey, what can you do with this? Um, yeah. But I, I agree with you. It may also be, you know, like, hey, you already did Stand By Me. You did a Stephen King adaptation. You know, Stephen King right. probably likes you because, you know, you worked with him a little bit on it. So and it wasn't a question I, I expected you to have an answer for. I just wanted to hear you uh, theorize as to why someone would be like, let's get Rob Reiner on the phone. And I yeah. and I'm this is like the start of I won't have much to say about it. I. I don't really care for Rob Reiner movies too much. Um, This is one of the best I've seen of his. Uh this and Princess Bride are probably my two favorites. I, yeah, I, I will say I, I like basically all of them. Um, I'm not really into When Harry Met Sally as much. Um, but I'll, if a Rob Reiner movie is on, essentially any of these, Princess Bride, Stand With Me, A Few Good Men. Um, what about movie, North? <laughs> well, that's, that's not a Rob Reiner movie. Um, he's only peripherally involved. Oh, um, really? I thought he directed it. Did he? Maybe he did. I think that's, he did. That's, that's horrifying. Can we get confirmation of that? Can you look it up? Yeah, I'll look it up right um, now. Actually, I don't need to because I know he directed it, but oh, I'll do good. it anyway. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, I'll anyway. do it anyway. Uh, it was directed by Rob Reiner. Yes. That's really okay. Well, then that makes a lot more sense because uh, Andrew Scheinman wrote the script for North, uh, which Kathy Bates was also in. This is this um, kind of like... Uh, collaboration that nobody wanted i guess yeah, with the with the young elijah wood yeah um, fresh off of flipper um and, and the good son and the good son don't forget the good son and when, when the role of frodo <laughs> is just a twinkle in his eye <laughs> um so I, I think rob reiner is on paper kind of a weird choice the other kind of thing about weird choices is especially after having seen this film can you imagine anyone other than uh, James Caan and Kathy Bates as the leads? No. And that's, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I mean, I, I watched the movie for the first time for this episode and I already feel that way. And what's so interesting about it is that James Caan is such a, 
I've never seen him in a role like this. He's always no. like got a lot of energy. He's angry. He's like, what's it? A thief. Um, and well, Godfather, obviously like he's yeah, just, yeah. he's crazy. And a lot of these movies, this was so interesting to watch man. And that I, a lot of my entertainment from this movie was just seeing him in a role like this. It was really fascinating. Yeah. I, I can't imagine, uh, like we said, anyone else in those roles, but there was James Conn was kind of at the bottom of the list of people. They, Oh yeah. This is, I read the full list. So they wanted um, William Hurt very badly, apparently. Um, who I think would be okay in that role. Yeah. But they wanted Kevin Klein, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfus, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford, and Warren Beatty. Damn. Um, yeah. Holy which cow, that is like a who's some, who of Hollywood right there. And some of them I think would work better than others. Um, like I, I think Al Pacino and Robert De Niro may have been a little too much. That's that's crazy, I think. I Even think it doesn't Hoffman, I wouldn't have liked in it. No, 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 no. I think Hackman actually would have worked fairly well. I think her, him, Harrison Ford, or, I mean, William Hurt. Is William a great Hurt, I think, would be great as too. well. Yeah. Um, however, uh, all those people said no, which I can kind of understand because um, James Caan uh, took the role of eventually because he said that uh, he was playing a character that was purely reactionary and that that was a large challenge for him. And it's true, right? This is on paper a very weird uh, film, um, just in terms of like the number of people involved, the sets, like everything is very minimal. And um, this central character is just things are happening to him constantly. Yeah. And he, he is basically on his back heel the entire film. So as an actor, you're not really taking on this role to like, Paul's not really growing and changing here. Uh, I mean, he is, but only as a result of what's happening to him because of Annie. He's not really doing anything to grow and change himself, like, of his own volition, I guess, is the mm -hmm. point. Um, and the other thing is uh, Rob Reiner specifically wanted a high-energy actor like James Caan um, because he imagined that forcing them into, uh, like, a shoot where they'd have to stay in bed for hours and days at a time um, would create interesting opportunities for acting and directing that, you know, it would drive James Conn kind of stir crazy uh, and he could use that energy in, um, in the scenes, which I think probably wound up happening. Uh, yeah. I think his acting in this film is top notch. It's incredible. Yeah. The other people uh, they wanted to play Annie uh, was a shorter list, but they wanted Angelica Houston, uh, which would be weird, but I could maybe wrap my mind around it. Yeah. Uh, or Bette Midler. <laughs> Can you um, imagine that movie? Can you imagine a Michael Douglas, Bette Midler version of Misery? <laughs> no. can, Actually, you imagine, can you imagine an Al Pacino, Bette Midler, Misery? Al Pacino, Bette Midler, Misery is kind oh, of... I, I, my. That movie would have bombed. Be still my heart. Can you even imagine it? But uh, they did not go that direction. Uh, it was actually William Goldman who selected, or I'm sorry, suggested Kathy Bates, who was more of a stage actress at the time. Um, this role kind of catapulted her into mainstream Hollywood success. I did not realize that this was this early in her career. I mean, I, I hadn't really heard of her in anything before this, but for some reason, I just assumed that at this point she had been doing a lot of acting and like a lot. And this was kind of like a, oh, this is her big first, you know, break. Uh, yeah. Her, her no, first, like her first, like, you know, awards caliber opportunity. 
Yeah, I think it's. I she had been acting for obviously a long time. Again, as I said, oh, she had. Stage. She okay. yeah, she had been acting. She was mainly a stage actress. So I, I think she was already an accomplished actress. I think this is just kind of what shifted her from stage to screen. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, as I kind of mentioned, Rob Reiner had never directed a thriller or kind of more, I mean, A Few Good Men is definitely more of a thriller ish. Yeah. But he'd never directed more of a like horror thriller. So he studied the genre um, and uh, specifically explored how to, the use of uh, angles and lenses would contribute to the unsettling atmosphere. Um, and that works to pretty decent effect. Um, you can tell he studied the genre. You can tell he focused on things like music, on movement, on shot composition. Um, and he clearly learned uh, from his studies because I think some of the suspense sequences in this film are really, really, really top notch. I think that this movie does a really good job with tension where I think yes. it, again, to preface, I, I like this movie. Uh, it, it was very good. Um, I think that it shows that he studied the genre up to that point in history. And I, and what I mean by that is like, there is some like dolly work and some like tilted shots in this movie that I think personally are less effective for horror than a lot of, I, I feel like I'm maybe influenced a lot by um, more modern horror, kind of like the, we could call like there was a little bit of like a lull in the in the nineties and then the kind of like late aughts and you know the last decade really has been great for horror movies. And it's it's hard not to compare it to those modern movies. There's a lot of like very I mean it, it's an 80s movie, right? I mean early like yeah, late 80s. Uh or no, sorry, 1990, apologies. Um, but still like of that time, there's like, there's like, I, yeah. there's like a kind, there's like a vibe that the movie's giving off that I think actually works against it. If that makes any sense. It's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a tense thriller, but there's a playfulness to some of like the, the camera work and the directing that I think is, I think it works against it, but, but I think a lot of the choices that were made were necessary. And I, and I mean, when I say like direction and stuff, I also am thinking about the way that he shoots and the way, like the way the scenes play out with the sheriff that's looking for them. I just think that there's something about this that's very of the time. And I don't think horror movies of that time were as scary to me as some of more modern movies like i mean there's no way that rob reiner was ever going to be a stanley kubrick shining he was never no. going to be a john carpenter's anything no um no it's I very would, clear he, listen, he i i would watch john carpenter's anything <laughs> would you, wouldn't you <laughs> the thing and then anything anything um but you know what i mean like i, I there's something and, and I'm, i i I know I, I hear what you're saying and yeah. I agree with you 100%. We'll get to it when we talk about what works and what doesn't later. Oh, yeah. But I completely agree with you. Uh, the tone um, is a little uh, broad, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that is um, different than uh, like a more modern horror sensibility. I think what we're seeing, I think actually what hits the nail on the head, and again, we can talk it about it more at length when we get to what works and what doesn't. Yeah. That I think Rob Reiner was specifically chosen as well because he's at this point in time, 
he was kind of like a James Cameron in that whatever he makes has a very broad appeal. So I think this movie has a lot of that going on. It, has it absolutely a, does. It has yeah. it. There's like humor in it. There's there's a lot of stuff in it that if this were to like you could tighten it into a really tighter horror movie and strip all that stuff away. Um, but I think like that goes against Rob Reiner's sensibilities, which is to create a more you know broadly appealing. And I see why he did that. Like I can understand doing that. I, I, I think it does work against it a little bit, but for the time and just it, overall, I think it's an effective horror thriller. Um, yeah. it, it does. It's despite the fact that there's a little bit of, I, th- I think it's it, his inexperience in the genre shows, but there are scenes of tension that work very well. Yeah, I agree. Um, and let's talk about uh, before we jump into the plot, just how this movie was received. Um Massive success, right? Uh, yeah. Audiences, critics loved it. It made three times its uh, budget back, which for especially back then was a pretty high mark of success. Um, and then even today, Kathy Bates is really just, she'll go to her grave being tied to this role, you know, yeah. pretty, pretty closely. Um, she's obviously gone on to have a, a phenomenal career in her own right, but um, she is, this is regarded by many as her best, most iconic role, one of the scariest film villains of, of all time. Um, yep. And I, I would agree with that. Yeah. And and I think that that's a good segue into what I'll describe as like my brief knowledge of this movie prior to actually seeing it, because I don't have a history having watched this movie, obviously, which is why we're doing this. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, this movie's very famous. I've heard all about it. And, and I don't think this worked. I don't think it's made me like like the movie less or anything like that. But I, I really knew the whole premise of this movie before watching it. Um, it. It's no real secret. I mean, it's very, as we'll talk about, it's, it, it kind of lets you in on what's happening right away. It gets started. You already know he's in trouble from the very beginning. You can tell. It's one of, um, those, it's one of those stories with like a two-sentence plot yeah. which you would think would work against it, but really doesn't. Yeah. But like throughout, I mean, the, the movie and some of its scenes are very famous, especially one that we'll definitely talk about. Um, I've, I've, I've seen it before. I don't know when or how, but I, I'm, I know it. I know the beats of the story generally. Uh, I didn't know everything that was going to happen, but like some of it, you know, it, it was a very familiar movie to me, despite having never seen it. Um, so it was really nice to actually finally see it from start to finish. I really enjoyed it. Good, good. I, yeah. I am very glad you enjoyed it. Um, I obviously have a bit of a longer history with this film. Um, I have been a big Stephen King fan, um, kind of ever since I was a reader. Um, uh, and I caught this film on A&E. Um, it was like a winter night, probably like a Friday or something. And remember when A&E used to play operas and was yeah. actually a classy channel. <laughs> so, uh, this was that time and A&E actually played classy, uh, movies. And so uh, I caught it from almost the beginning, uh, basically like when Paul wakes up. Um, and I'd kind of heard of it before, uh, but didn't really know what it was about. Just knew that it was Stephen King, knew that a lot of people liked it. Um, and even though it was the TV edited version, I was just sucked in immediately. I was horrified. I was just completely enraptured by what I was seeing. Kathy Bates' performance, um, just you know, wondering how James Conn was gonna make it out. Um, and I bought the book, I think that next weekend, like one week later, I went out and I bought the book and read it basically, uh, in one weekend. Damn. Um, 
Yeah, the book the book is uh, also very good. The book and the film are very close um, plot-wise, but there are some kind of significant differences uh, that I'll talk about later. Um, but the book stands in its own right as like a, as a really good um, use of your time if you're looking for a good book. But then I went out and I bought uh, the DVD of the unedited version um, and saw the full hobbling scene um, and wound up just cherishing it. That's the version I watched again. When I watched it, I still have the DVD version with the special features. Um, but I've probably seen this film 15 to 20 times now. This is the kind of movie where if I'm sick in bed um, or I'm just you know feeling unmotivated and it's a gloomy day outside, I throw this movie on. Um, I absolutely love it. Um, there's just something so weirdly comforting about it, I think, because it's so domestic, right? It's set in this house. There are people cozied up in bed. Um, but, I mean, obviously horrifying things happen, um, but it's just like a snowy, cozy kind of movie uh, to me. One of my favorite things about film in general is what you just said. The fact that this movie can be such a comfort movie to you I, I just love that I love hearing that so much um oh, yeah. I, I knew you loved this movie that's why you picked it I didn't really I don't think I appreciated until now the depth of your love for it and and we haven't even talked about the plot yet um but I just love to hear that I it's so you know if someone was just like hey uh Antichrist is my um comfort movie I wouldn't be like, you sick bastard. Uh, I would be like, that's fascinating. Tell me more. I need to know why it comforts you. Um, then yeah, I'd be like, you and, sick bastard. And I almost like at this point, like uh, Paul and Annie are like old friends, right? Like to me at this point, Annie isn't scary. Annie's like kind of silly and over the top. And like, I just love seeing her wild, you know, antics. Um, so yeah, I think that's part of it. Like, I think horror, uh, and I think you you could probably agree with this because you're uh, uh, pretty uh, a big a large fan of the horror genre. But I think horror, when done correctly, endears us to the characters far more effectively than a lot of other genres. Yeah, um, just because effective horror makes us root for them so hard. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's just what happened with me. Like I just really, ever since I first saw this, I, I've just rooted for Paul so much. Um, and you almost root for Annie too, in a weird way. Um, just because you never know what she's going to do, but it's always going to be kind of big and crazy. Hmm. Um, and I think at least the first time I watched this, I kind of, I was almost on her side in terms of like, what, what's going to, what's she going to bring out next? Like, I almost want to know. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I, I truly adore this, this film. How an audience responds to Annie's actions is one of the things I was thinking about the most in my time since watching it and now recording. Um, I know that I think it was Goldman said that they want, they made certain choices to try to make the audience hate Annie versus sympathize with her. And while mental illness, you know, unchecked mental illness is, is serious. I, I would, I was thinking to myself, how would anyone have been sympathizing with her for 70% of the movie? Yeah, I, I think it's funny you say that because that transitions into uh, kind of my thoughts on seeing the movie uh, this most recent time. Okay. It's, it's been um, probably a couple years since I like actually sat down and watched Misery like start to end. Um, and rewatching it this time, um, it, it kind of always is in the back of my mind, but this time through kind of like 2021 eyes, I, I did really sympathize with Annie more than I have probably ever in the past. 
Um, and maybe that's partly because of like quarantine and COVID and understanding what it's like to be kind of locked inside and locked inside like kind of your own head a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I see her now as more tragic and flawed and sympathetic because like, I think at the end of the day, she, she, is, a, she is a monster. She is a manipulative monster. Um, but I think they do enough to show that she has, she's a person with serious unaddressed mental illnesses. Yeah. Um, and that I think if she got help for them, um, you know, there would be no movie. Uh, I don't think she would be fine. I don't think she would be a well-adjusted person. Um, and I think one of the the real nails in the coffin is they definitely make it clear, like she she has murdered infants. Like she has yeah. murdered probably dozens of infants. So even if you can look past everything else she's done, even if you can sympathize with her for you know her mental illness that's not being treated um she did something so heinous and wrong and knew it was wrong and covered it up so um they they make it okay in the end uh for kind of what happens to her. And you can tell me later when you do a segment on comparisons with the novel but i wanted to know whether or not she was a child killer in the novel also or if they just left it as she's she's defined by her actions of kidnapping him and that's it we don't know anything else yeah, I, I think the book in general is darker and bleaker. Okay. And um, the book, their characterization of Annie is also darker and bleaker. I think I prefer the film version of Annie because they 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 make her cute, which I regret using that word already. But they, they do things to make Annie kind of cute and endearing a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Which I think, one, makes it more watchable. But two, kind of it makes sense realistically because like before this woman was cooped up at home, she was a functioning person in society. Like she does know how to like charm and trick and fool people. Like she's not only crazy. Um, So I I almost, I think the film adaptation of her that that makes her a little like lighter um, while still also having these very dark parts of her backstory. uh, I think it, it, it does a good job finding that balance. Yeah. And the last point I want to make before we talk about the plot is that, I mean, this being your comfort movie made me think about, again, I, I mentioned how it, there's a little bit of a playfulness to it. They make part, the aspects of Annie, like cute. Um, James Kahn's very watchful in this. I mean, the movie, like you said, was made to be, to appeal to like a wide audience. And I think it does. Similarly, one of the, well, maybe not, not as well received, but like, I mean, we talked about this when we did the episode on Event Horizon has been a comfort movie for me. And I think there's a similar playfulness and it's, I mean, it's a, it's a horror movie, but there's a, there's a silliness to it that I think is kind of in this as well, a little more so in Event Horizon than this, but you know what I mean? There's, there's a little bit of a tone, a playful tone to both of those movies. And I, and I, and I think that's interesting. It makes it more, it lends itself to more of a rewatchable comfort movie. Like I'm not, the witch or like Midsommar is not, are not going to be comfortable. Oh no, no. You know what no. I mean? Like I, the I way that I, those movies are shot that make them comfort movies. I think I know what exactly what it is. And I think when those, when misery was produced, you would never, this word didn't even uh, mean the same thing it does now, but it's almost cringe humor, right? Yes. Like that's, that's kind of the level it's operating. It's like very cringe humor, uh, which is, you know, kind of a thing that's in vogue now. But uh, that's essentially what it is, really. Yeah. It's just, it's so wildly absurd and uncomfortable. And like these situations are just so outlandish. 
um, that they're almost silly. Um, and like the things Annie does and the things she gets upset about and her reactions to them, like are on the one hand horrifying, but they're horrifying because they're like a child's reactions coming out of like a grown woman's body. It's very, it's, it's very weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about the plot, shall we? Um, how do we, how do we jump into this, this film? Well, the movie jumps right in. We get, um, shots of uh, the sound of clickety clacking on the typewriter. Um, and it is author Paul Sheldon. who was finishing his latest novel. Um, and he kind of engages in this celebration ritual. Um, it's very obvious. It's that it's not explicitly said, but it's very clear. I think, um, but there's like a shot of like a lone cigarette, like a lucky strike cigarette, I think, and a bottle of Dom Perignon on ice. And he finishes a manuscript and he goes to smoke a cigarette and have a bottle of champagne. Um, I think that's pretty neat. I like the way to, that, that the movie starts in that way. Um, and yeah, it moves I, pr- pretty quickly um, it, it, from that. It on. does. Can we, can we just pause on his yeah. little uh, celebration here for a second? Um, I know that, and we'll get to it near the end, but what happens at the end, I, I know was very explicitly shot and designed to be very sexual in nature. Um, and I just like to think about Paul's celebration for finishing writing a novel, right? He pops the cork on the champagne, right? Which is a very sexual image, um, like ejaculation. Um, and then lights a cigarette, which, you know, is kind of the old school, like, you know, it's shorthand in movies, like after people have sex, they smoke cigarettes, right? It's also the idea of like lighting a fire, like the fire of creativity. Um, and then it's like to celebrate this birth, right? The birth of this novel. So they they do this really um interesting uh almost like uh jungian like birth sex like pleasure weird symbolic uh thing with this celebration and maybe that's from me watching this movie so many times and thinking about it um but especially with how again it results later uh there's something undeniably like powerful and weird and sexual about I, when we get to the end, I want you to tell me exactly what you're talking about in terms of the sexual nature of it. Cause I don't think I really felt or I caught anything sexual in this movie, gotcha. except for like, you know, some necessary kind of moderate flirtation with your captor to try to get on our good side. Um, happens every time I'm kidnapped, you know, you just got to throw a little bit their way. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's easier for everyone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so Paul finishes that manuscript. He, um, puts it in this like weathered satchel that it seems like something he's had for a long time. I think it's later said that he has had it for a long time. Um, and he throws that into the backseat of his car, uh, and he takes off driving to New York city. And I, I had to like pause the movie and like look on Wikipedia to make sure that I heard this correctly to understand that he's driving to New York city from Colorado. Correct. I guess that's what people did back then. Um, in the book, they kind of make clear that he enjoys the road, the long road trip because it lets him think about his writing. Um, okay. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's a very long trip regardless. Yeah. Well, so I mean, that trip doesn't last very long. So he immediately enters into a snowstorm and his car gets driven off the road and flips over and crashes. This is all within the first like four minutes of the movie. 
Yeah, we kind of need to we kind of need to get these beginning details out of the way to really establish like what's going on and who the players are. Yeah, and then when we get to kind of more um, the middle of the plot, we can kind of speed it up a bit. But, yeah, um, we kind of need to know what's going on here. So uh, he has crashed into this snowbank. Uh, it's very much so off the side of almost like a cliff, very far off the road. Uh, the idea being like no one's going to find him, right? Um, however. Uh, just as Paul is going to succumb to his injuries, someone um, opens the door with a crowbar, um, pulls him out and saves him. Um, but before that, we get a flashback. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, let's, let's do it. So uh, we get Paul talking to his agent, um, played by, um, gosh, her name is escaping me. Um, she's oh, uh, Lauren Bacall. Lauren Bacall, yes. Lauren Bacall, who is phenomenal as the agent. Um, and it's basically setting the stakes for Paul and his career, right? So uh, he is discussing the novel that we have just seen him finish um, and that he would like to complete it. Um, he has recently, uh, or is about to come out with a brand new novel um, called Misery's Child, uh, the last in his long running series about a character named Misery Chastain. Um, these are like, you get the impression they're popular kind of cheesy historical romance novels. Um, Paul hates Misery. Um, he does not like writing these books, but his agent mentions that Misery has, you know, paid for his vacation home and put braces on his daughter's teeth and has allowed him to be financially successful as a writer. Yeah. Um, Paul mentions specifically that in his newest and last Misery book, he has killed off the character of Misery Chastain allowing him to focus on other creative pursuits. Yes. Um, so we cut back to the car and Paul being rescued. Yep. Um, oh, and, and significantly, uh, in addition to Paul uh, being pulled out of the vehicle, the bag uh, featuring his newly finished manuscript is pulled out with him. Yep. And, and then what happens? Paul comes to um, in this room that really kind of feels like a nursery in a way it's not explicitly i don't think there's anything like explicitly for kids there but it's just it, it's this like bleak almost nursery looking room and or am i just am i just saying that like in hindsight now that i know that she like killed infants well, i don't even know if she had kids but there was just something about it that just the room i mean it, it's obviously you got to get the room right because you're going to be spending the majority of the movie in this room and i thought it's a very it's a very effective room. I was just trying to put to words, like what does the room remind me of? And I think it reminds me of like a nursery. I agree. Um, I, I think you could probably uh, do some headcanon work and say that this is where Annie intended a nursery to be. If she ever had a baby. Yeah. Uh, because right. she was married, she mentioned. So, you know, who knows if they try to have a child. I, I agree. It's, there's something about it. It's like the clinical like walls. Um, it's like the bed uh, being there. Um, it does feel like, uh, like a nursery or almost like a impromptu hospital room more so than any other kind of room. Yeah. I would uh, say that I, it, it's a kind of room that makes you feel uncomfortable right away. Yes. Um, and kind of right from the get go you get that line. I think it's the first line she says to him when he comes to, and she, she says, I'm your biggest fan. Yep, I'm your number, your number one, one number one fan. And I don't know if it's movies that have like this movie and other movies since that have kind of started a, like, I'm obsessed with you. Like I'm your number one fan, like that kind of like stalker. I mean, there's, 
you know, fatal attraction existed before this, right? I mean, there, there's the, the idea of like an, an obsessed person as like the antagonist of like a horror movie or a psychological thriller has been done before. But for some reason, like, even if I didn't know anything about this movie, if I had seen enough movies before this and I had, he wakes up in that room, she's looking at him. I think it's like a, cl- a tight shot on her face. Like, she's like, I'm not your number one fan. I'm already like, this is bad news, right? I'm trying to put myself in like, you know, someone who knows less about movies than I do, but I feel like if you've seen enough movies, you already know. Like, and I don't think the movie's really trying to hide it, right? Like, I, well, he's in I, trouble I, right away. He is in trouble. And I think what it sets up immediately, uh, kind of subconsciously, is that this is Annie's priority. Her priority is explaining that she's his number one fan. Her first words to him aren't, you're okay, or this is where you are, or you were in an accident. Her very first words to him are, I'm your number one fan. Yeah. Um, so it's just immediately shorthand for like, this is all this woman cares about. This is where her head is at. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, the, the camera work here, uh, it's a lot of, you know, like fuzzy kind of lenses, um, like kind of off-putting disorienting uh, shooting um, to also kind of make us feel uh, kind of off-put and scared. Mm-hmm. Um, Annie explains that uh, we get a little more detail of an explanation later, but she quote unquote found him uh found his car crash and drove him to her kind of farmstead in the mountains Mm -hmm. so we can just kind of talk about it now she later tells him that she would drive up to uh kind of stalk him essentially uh, and watch him while he writes um and then happen to be following him uh and crash during the snowstorm so i guess i never thought about it until this most recent watch through but um, they don't, they never make it really clear uh, where Annie lives. Like we know that she must live close enough to this town um, that they know of her and that mm-hmm. she goes there. Um, but uh, like in my head canon now, and it doesn't really matter, but I think it just makes more sense that instead of coincidentally just living close to that hotel, um, she's Annie's like driving a long way uh, to see this guy. Like, to just, yep. I think it, it that in my own head canon is like no she's so obsessed that she's willing to, to drive far out of her way just to watch a guy write in his hotel room i imagine that she had heard like where he goes to write or i'm sure he had said sometime publicly and she like purchased property in the area specifically yeah. so she could right yeah. like or, or that yeah yeah um there's a lot that's unsaid in this film um kind of about the characters and like when certain things happen to them. Or and I'm like okay with that. I'm okay with it too. And I really think it's one of the movie's strengths because it kind of, I, I think about these different questions almost every time I watch the film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Annie uh, gives Paul his first dose of pain meds. Um, this is important. Uh, the pain meds become a plot point later. Uh, it's called Navril. Um, it's not a real medicine. Um, Stephen King made up Navril for both... Um, you know, for the, the book misery and it carried, got carried over. Um, all that we, all we need to know as the audience is that it's a very powerful painkiller that knocks Paul out. I kind of wondered previously, like why Stephen King would bother to make up uh, like a painkiller when so many others exist. Yeah. But um, it kind of makes sense uh, because it's both a painkiller and like a plot uh, device. Um, so it can kind of do whatever you need it to do plot wise. Whereas if you had to associate it with an actual pain medication and be like, well, measurements and body weights and things like that. Yeah. Um, by just kind of making it up, he, he can kind of make it up as he goes in terms of like the rules, quote unquote, of this medicine. Yeah. 
So I'm okay with it. Yeah. Um, Annie claims that she's tried calling for help, but all the phone lines are down. Um, this is sort of a, a realistic thing based on the storm we saw, but um, every single shot yeah. uh, we see within the room going outside significantly shows the brightest, clearest blue skies you can possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only one moment in this entire film where there is rain or bad weather. Um, so it's, there are all these little things that kind of just undermine Annie's lies, um, throughout the film. And, yeah. and that's one of them. It, it, she's really taking advantage of the fact that he doesn't know where he is and he's yes. kind of has to listen to her, but obviously he gets wise. So, yeah. And then kind of mixing in with all these things are these shots of her giving him medicine and giving him tiny bits of information, but they keep fading to black. Right. So I think. Um, the idea is this is Paul's kind of like cycle. He wakes up, she gives him a little information, knocks him out. So uh, time has gone by, but we really have no idea how much. Yeah. And I mean, it's purposely vague, right? Um, really quick on, on the, the series of shots that you were just talking about. I, I mean, during the scene, I think, and then throughout the rest of the movie, there are a lot of very close shots of her and him and i want to know what you think about that do you think it's effective do you think that would you would you rather see more like medium shots that show more of the room like i feel like most of the shots are we get a lot of shots of like up close of both of them and i think and when it comes to her and framing her very like tightly i feel like that was done to try to emphasize her like domination over him and i think it is effective to a point and then in moments where she's like having outbursts and stuff i actually think it makes it funny well (laughs) it it does no i i agree with you fully i think it you know i i want to rewatch it immediately right now because i would i would bet that when you're seeing annie it's almost always from paul's perspective right so there's that like downward tilt to the camera right which which already is an unflattering position but it already kind of makes you look a little bit uncanny and then add to that some of like the fish lenses and other things they do um and then yeah pretty much every shot we get of paul is more from annie's perspective we're like we're looking down on him things Mm -hmm. like that um a, a lot of the camera work i agree um kind of we're I think it's purposely tight because it is putting us in those two people's positions yeah. where you, you would be zoomed in right on their face. You would not be kind of looking at a wide angle on them, right? Yeah. It's just the two of you in a room Yep, um, would be my bet. Um, so, yeah. So really quickly, we get a glimpse of Paul's legs because she says that he's got, what was it like shattered femurs or something? He has he has a lot of issues. Yeah, he's got a lot of issues. And she, um, and it really comes out of nowhere, even though she's telling him about the accident. She just kind of like casually rolls the blanket, um, kind of while bragging about herself and like how she was able to fix his legs because she's a nurse. And you see his legs and they were like really messed up. Like no bones coming out, but it is just, they're like mangled. Like and it, they're, there's like steel pins and like metal rods. And it's, it's, it's very jarring because you're right that she doesn't, she in no way prepares him or the audience for what these are going to look like. Um, and then the shot that uh, Rob Reiner uses, it like luxuriates over slowly panning down these really mangled legs. 
Um, this isn't like a body horror movie, but like this shot and a couple others are just deeply like unsettling. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's Paul's predicament. Uh, what's going on in the outside world? So there is a search for Paul that's kind of begun. Like his agent calls the local sheriff who is played by Richard Farnsworth, who I haven't seen in too many movies. Um, most notably, I would say is this um, the straight story um, by the David Lynch movie. Mm, yeah. Um, he, you know, he's just like a, an old sheriff who's kind of got this like lovable presence. I kind of, I, I liked scenes with him. Um, so he's really like the entire police force of whatever this, wherever this town is like he and his wife, I don't even know if his wife is like actually like a deputy, but she like works, works with him to help find Paul. Um, but he, it's very clear that he's highly perceptive. Like, you know, he's a, he's a smart guy. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's just from, from the get go, very likable. Um, that kind of shows like with his laid back attitude. I mean, it really like makes you kind of feel for the guy and like the guy a lot, but it's also like, this is, this is a situation that he's probably never dealt with before. And is a little bit ill-equipped to do, to, to find Paul. Um, but nevertheless, uh, he's kind of on the case. Yeah, I, I think this character, Buster, I think his name is Buster. Uh, yes. Or, or I, I call him Buster. I think that's his name. But uh, Buster and his wife, I think if we like kind of metagame it, um, are kind of like the most successful examples of just walking, talking plot devices. Um, but yeah. they're so successful because they do just enough to give them personality and make them charming. Like Buster essentially only exists to set up the ticking clock at the end, right? Right. He's he's like the tool that the the director and the writer are using to give us information about the outside world, and you know who is looking for Paul and how that search is going, and then also to set up the ticking clock at the end. Um, that's really what they're there for. But just all these tiny little details, like the cute relationship with his wife. Um, the fact that he calls her his deputy, the fact that they do all these little errands together, um, the fact that uh, he puts, you know, Paul Sheldon's like picture on his like his yeah. corkboard. Like, like they cutely bicker with each other. Yeah, just all these little things like do. And it all happens in such a short span. Like he and his wife, their scenes are never long, um, but just the, the chemistry between them. There's just there's so much charm um, working like every on every level of these characters like. The writing is succinct. Uh, Plot-wise, they get done what they need to get done, but their dialogue just makes them feel like real people. Like I love their interactions with each other as husband and wife. Yeah. Um, I, I really, really, really love uh, Buster and his wife in this film. Um, and again, like at the end of the day, really they're just kind of like plot devices, but I think yeah. they're, they're done very well. They're also additions to the film. Uh, the book does not have these characters. The book uh, has like just two generic police officers rescue Paul. I think this is such a better choice. Agreed. Yeah. But plus, plus you can imagine like you, you have to have more. Like this, this seems to me like even if Rob Reiner, it might have been Rob Reiner's idea or William Goldman's idea, but like that, that this seems to me like if it wasn't one of their their ideas, especially the screenwriter, this is like this would be a pro- a producer note. Like you got to yeah. have some other characters in the movie that are lovable or that are that you can watch because we cannot just be in the room with those two the entire time. 
Right, which and which normally, um, like seeing other films where there are those types of characters where you're like, obviously this was a producer note, it pretty much never works. Like I never like those characters yeah. because they feel like producer notes. I, I think these guys are probably producer notes or like screenwriter notes, but I just still love them. Like yeah. I just, they like, they made it work. I like them too. And I'll talk more about that later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, we cut back to Annie um, who is telling Paul that she has called his agent, um, but she kind of just really rushes through it um, and doesn't give him any information besides like, Oh, what, you know, they know you're alive, but that's pretty much it. Um, what she really wants to ask him is if she can read the new novel um, that she has found in his, uh, his bag. Yeah. Um, what I really love here and what we kind of start to see is like, Annie's kind of like adorkable, um, especially when it comes to Paul and his writing. And we, you know, all the smart people in the audience at this point, the movie's called Misery. You know, we, we know that this lady's bad news. Um, but this is really the first of maybe once or twice in the movie where we kind of see a different side of her where like, she's maybe not scary. Like maybe this is the side of Annie that, you know, quote unquote, normal people see when she's at work or, you know, at the grocery store. Um, she's just super giddy and excited about this like book that she found. Yeah. She's like, really? You'll let me read yeah. your manuscript. And so I, I've thought about this and I kind of arrived at the answer that I believe is true, but like it's been asked, I think by other people who've seen this or read the book, like to what degree are Annie's behaviors genuine and to what degree are they uh, like a facade? Like, is she purposely building a mask? Because we yeah. know that we know that she's capable of lying and manipulating. And we know that she is capable of getting away with very serious bad things again, through lies and manipulation. So like, is she just truly a gushing fangirl to be able to read this book? Or is this a calculated move? Like, I know if I fawn and gush, maybe he'll be more likely to let me read it. I don't know. And I don't think the movie really lands on either way. My interpretation, having only seen the movie once um, and not had, a, you know, tons of time to digest it, is that it was very genuine that she is her kind of mental state is a little bit of a roller coaster and she's very childlike, like you mentioned um, in moments. And I think that, I think it was very genuine. I think that there are, she is like wrestling with like her love of this person and just, just kind of like deeply disturbed, like voice inside her almost. That's just like, you know, cause she talks about like how like God sent him to her but you don't really get a whole lot more like there's not, it's not very explicitly explained what her like religious history is. Um, no, but like, I, I think it's all genuine. I think she truly like when she says she loves him, she believes it. Um, she's not just gushing to trying to like get him to calm down a little bit. Um, and those moments where she kind of just turns on a dime and is just extremely angry. I mean, it, it's, it's a, you know, she's got mental health problems, you know, like I, I you, you can, you can go from you know, like this bipolar nature, right? I mean, you, you can go from elation to rage. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's yeah. very Hollywoody. Um, oh, yeah. Granted, I have no experience like being around like mental health patients, you know, or like mental patients or anything like that. Like, I don't, I don't know what it's like, um, but 
it, you know, it's very played up for the sake of this is a movie. Um, but um, I, I do yeah. know that they they purposely did not want to give Annie a specific diagnosis. Right. Um, they wanted to keep it, the nature of what is wrong with her exactly kind of vague. It's better um, that way. I mean, even though I, I, I think agree. she's genuine. I, I do like yeah. I like having to ask that question. You know, is, is she just really, really good? And she's just making this all up. But to me, and, if that's if that's the case, then she is that her default state is that of a calm, calculated psychopath. Well, and that's the thing, because we see her like that um, in the film. Like when she comes in wearing the bathrobe uh, when she's depressed and shows James Conn the gun later, it's almost like that's the real her. Like that's who she truly is underneath everything. Yeah. And when she's like that, she's very matter of fact, like, well, we know what's going to happen. You're finishing the novel. We're probably both going to die. Like she, all of the pretenses like falls away. And so I, I, I agree. I, I don't know. I agree with you. Like, I think she is being genuine, like in this moment where she's kind of like geeking out over the book. But at the same time, I do think like whether she's aware of it or not, like it's all artifice, right? Like, the person she is kind of underneath all of it is this really brooding, terrifying, unhappy yeah. being. The way I explain that whole to myself, the way I explain that moment where she kind of is just walks in the room and she's depressed is just like you're at a, you know, amusement park for like four days with a kid, like on a vacation or like somewhere that a kid really likes. And you tell them a day before, the vacation's over. They're like, just so you know, like we're going home in like a day. And they're like, Oh really? Shit. Like, and that, like, it's almost like she, she is, this is just me trying to explain to myself and convince myself that she is being genuine and isn't actually like a, a cool light or like a cold psychopath. I mean, she's, she's both. It's just, I think her, her moments of elation are, are genuine. Yeah. yeah. Um, really quickly, uh, we get Paul, uh, or I'm sorry, Buster, uh, checking the hotel uh, to ask about Paul. Um, again, we get the explanation of his kind of end of book celebration, right? The champagne, the cigarettes, um, all that good stuff. Um, and again, I think that's purposeful because uh, it culminates at the end. Um, but tell us about when we cut back to Annie and Paul. Uh, what does she think of Paul's uh, new novel that he's he's got stashed away in that bag? She's not a fan. Um, she does not like how much profanity there is. Um, and I laughed uh, when she said that because I already get you could tell like Paul, Paul doesn't you already know Paul doesn't like the book, and I just <laughs> imagine him just like not taking his own like final misery book that seriously, and he's just like, and then she fucking did this, this fucking <laughs> piece of shit like i just imagine it being just so outlandish I, i'm sure it was i'm sure it wasn't but um she is like entirely different than we've seen her before she's like enraged um and you know she what does she do she like she's she does something and then she yells at him for like look what you made so me do it's, it's, soup or something yeah it's the soup and and two it's almost like it stops being any kind of a conversation um and it just starts being like her monologuing it's like she's a runaway train like it there's no back and forth it's just she's gonna like spew out all these thoughts that she has yeah and then this is the first time we because she kind of walks into the room in that state and yes. then we see her in real time switch back 
to she's just like it's just she snaps out of it she's like oh oh i'm paul i'm so sorry like i love you paul i love your mind i love your creativity you know it's just more unnerving and it's just you know that was paul's real like first glimpse into what he's dealing with yeah so um we can we can kind of like pick up the pace a little bit here yeah but, let's do that um so essentially what what happens here is um uh annie is gonna have paul or well hold on we'll, we'll get to that in a second but um basically annie here plants the seeds that she loves paul right not just um his yeah. brain but that she she is in love with paul um, which is our kind of last, like if we, if all, everything else wasn't a red flag before this is right. Paul clearly wants nothing to do with her uh, in any way, shape or form. But um, we see there's some more investigating going on. Annie's still kind of spinning her web of bullshit uh, to Paul um, to keep him convinced that things are normal and that Annie is, you know, in contact with the people yeah. he cares about. Um, we learn a little bit more about Annie. Um, she, she was a night shift nurse. Um, she was in a, I guess, bad divorce. She tells Paul that she became obsessed with reading Misery, uh, all the novels during her night shift, that she would finish them and then immediately turn them over and start them again. So presumably she's read them over and over and over, um, which is relatable, right? Like we've all been through periods of depression where, you know, for whatever reason, some franchise some multimedia thing just yeah. clicks with you and you just you become obsessed with it um so i, I think that helps make any relatable um but uh, in terms of making her not relatable um uh, what happens when she finishes misery misery's child oh she's even more angry than she was about the cursing um yeah. because at the end of the book she finds she finds out that paul kills the character of misery um, and she is reacting to this like he has killed her best friend right in front of her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this kind of causes her to drop the illusion a little bit. Um, not that he's, you know, I think he's starting to get a little wise to it, but she she's really snaps this. She's so angry. She kind of like lets her guard down a little bit in a way. And she just she becomes more vulnerable, but also threatening when she says, you know, you need me if you haven't noticed to survive. I saved your right. life. And also you're trapped here. And then she says what we've all been dreading. She tells him, no one knows you're here. I haven't actually talked to anyone. Exactly. Um, which, yeah, kind of, I think uh, at this point, Paul pr probably knows, but does not want to admit to himself. Yes. Um, yeah, um, she leaves him, um, seemingly for hours overnight for who knows how long Paul tries to leave, um, tries to escape and get out of bed. Um, but his body is just too shattered. Um, and it's to kind of also show us as the audience that, you know, like Paul is not in a place yet in the story where he is able to help himself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this kind of moment is quickly followed by her she's not angry necessarily she's, she's like really she's calmed down a little bit she's she's got like um like 
really big dick uh like literary agent energy going yes. on in this day and a half like she's decided one book is trash and now she's got some big bold ideas about this other book that paul has yeah and so now she says you need to burn this book and she gets she bring she wheels in this like charcoal grill yeah. uh and is like the only way you can be free is to to burn it he's like i don't want to burn it um, he almost tries to like play it off like he doesn't it's no it's not a big deal if he burns if he doesn't want to but she's like I know that this is your only copy based on your right. history I know everything about you I know you you're superstitious or wh- whatever it was she's like you're only gonna write one cop you only have one copy so you need to burn it and she forces him to do it yeah um and so uh, this is kind of where this is sort of the end of act one so she has Paul burn this new manuscript, which was supposed to be kind of his his gateway into uh, a creative life outside of misery, right? Um, but now her new plan is that he is going to write a new misery book in Annie's honor yep. uh, to fix uh, the mistake he made by killing misery. Yes. Um, so a couple of things begin happening here. Um, also, along with that, we see Paul beginning to stash away his Navarro pills. Yes. Um, and we also see him steal a hairpin. Yep. Um, he is plotting something. He is plotting something. So um, I, I like that this, we kind of finally we're at the end of act one. Um, we get our stakes, right? Paul is going to write this book for Annie. Um, but of course we know that Paul's motive will be to escape. Yes. Um, so now we begin kind of act two. This is a, we can probably, uh, you know, talk through a little bit faster because, um, you know, now that all the, the yeah. background information is done. Um, but uh, Andy bought Paul the wrong paper. Whoops. Um, Andy had kind of has a freak out, um, you know, that, you know, Paul's being kind of a pretentious uh, baby writer. Um, but Paul demonstrates that, no, actually, the, the paper is not correct. So um, Andy leaves to go get Paul new paper, which gives him the opportunity to explore the house. And he um, does. I really love this scene. Um, Why don't you tell me what you think about it? Because this is probably the first time you've seen it. Like, even if you've seen parts of it before, like this is the first time you've seen it within context for the entire film. And this is this is like a moment or like a a sequence that I had not heard of or seen. And I I thought it was a good um, use of, you know, tension. Um, So, I mean, really, we're kind of cross cutting between him at the house exploring and her out running an errand. And obviously we know he needs to get back into his room before she gets back. Um, you know, as, as he's kind of going around, he goes, he finds like a medical closet, I think. And she's, he steals a bunch more pills. Um, he kind of looks around. He, he, he tries to call someone on the phone. He realizes the phone is fake. Um, and he like, you know, there's those kind of classic, I don't know what you want to call it. Like, cheesy maybe is the right word like moments where it's like he you know knocks something over and he catches it before it falls off the table this little like penguin um sculpture this little tiny penguin sculpture which is relevant to something that happens later um so it's very tense right like he he's going in and out of doors he's in a wheelchair so his mobility is limited um that which lends itself to the tension um he i think probably the other most notable thing he does is finds out more about Annie. He, there's like a scrapbook. It's almost like Annie keeps a scrapbook of her own failures, um, <laughs> which is very weird. It, we we talked about this um, 
Well, not really. There was a moment in Hereditary where a character kind of looks at a book and realizes yeah, what they're dealing yeah. with. Like it was one of those moments where I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> it's like here's um, the here's the evil plan binder, and it's like, the, guys, why why'd you keep your evil plan in a binder? That's the only really like this was. I'll just get it out now. This was one of the things in the movie I didn't like. I did not like that he that there's this book of like scrapbook of all like her like biggest failures. Like he finds out that she like was allegedly responsible for the deaths of some infants in the 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 war that she worked in as a nurse um and he's it's it's like his reaction is kind of like a it's wordless but it's kind of like a oh man she, i am really dealing with some shit it's like as if you didn't already know that right <laughs> like yeah like i i, I would have been more amused if he had looked at this book and been like yep makes sense yeah it's it's definitely one of the most like movie like gimmick uh gimmicky kind of things in in the film yeah um however what i really love about this whole sequence is just the density of information it gives you essentially entirely non-verbally i I do love that a lot yeah yeah you get so much information right you know that he's definitely trapped now right there's no way he can get out he knows that he has access to a knife um, we get the penguin uh, little thing moment, which we'll come back to later. Um, we, we get all these things about Annie, the fact that the phone is fake, this book that he finds about her, he's stealing the novel. Um, it's just all, and I agree with you. Like, I think the book's kind of sloppy, um, but I just love that in a scene that it, in a, in a lesser film with the lesser people helming it, um, this kind of, it's almost an info dump, right? We get all these like pieces of information and different like plot pieces that will come back at yeah. different points. Um, and in less uh, competent hands, this would have been clumsier, I think. Yeah. And in more competent hands, it wouldn't have had the book. <laughs> that's actually, that's <laughs> completely true. Um, and I, I think we there's a very tense scene when Annie is on her way home. Um, yeah. Paul needs to book it back into the room um, so that Annie does not know that he was out. Um, even though, you know, you know, as the audience, you know, Paul's not going to get caught at this point in the film um, if you're a savvy film goer. Um, but I think it's still extremely effective. Like this, this moment has me at the edge of my seat uh, yeah. when Annie comes back and Paul is still is kind of, you know, drenched in sweat. Um, I love, love, love Paul's reasoning for that, that he kind of comes up with on the spot. Yeah. Like, well, you know, yeah, you've left me here and you haven't given me my, my pain meds to kind of turn it back on her. He very um, immediately switches into that, like kind of like, Annie, like I'm, I'm sick. Please make my pain go away. And he really taps into her vulnerabilities. Yeah. And the, the Paul in the movie, right? Because we kind of talked about it, he's a very reactionary character. We don't really learn very much about him. Um, other than that, through his actions, we learn like he's highly intelligent and highly resourceful. Yeah. Um, and he 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 will outsmart her to survive. Yeah. Um, there's more of Paul's backstory in the novel, but I don't think it's really at all relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the meantime, the law enforcement has found his car and basically presume assume he's dead. Um and the, the local news reports on that as well. Um, but our, our boy Buster um, is not so convinced and happens to be the only law enforcement officer who notices that the car has been obviously, pri- the car door was obviously pried open with something. And he like doesn't tell anyone, I guess. Two ridiculous um, things that one, no one else noticed that too, that he wouldn't say anything. Yeah, this does, this also feels very like film plotty to me. Um, yeah but I, I'm willing to look over it. 
Uh, yeah. But it's it's a little clumsy. Yep. Uh, speaking of clumsy, Annie thinks that some element of Paul's writing is clumsy. Uh, what is it? Um, actually, you'll have to remind me. What is that? Uh, so um, it's not exactly clear uh, what Paul did plot-wise, but apparently Paul began writing this new Misery book with Misery Alive and Well. Uh, but Annie points out that in the continuity of the Misery books, um, Misery is dead and buried at the end of Misery's Child. Uh, which means that for Paul to be write a sequel, oh, uh, right. he has to he has to begin with misery being dead and buried, and kind of figure out a way for her to come back to life. And of all the things that she says and does in this movie, this is the most batshit crazy of all of them. Well, I honestly, I, I think it just shows like her control of him extends even into his creative process now. Like there are no boundaries between them. Like she is even dictating um, how he is allowed to, and in what ways he is allowed to be creative. I just think it's ridiculous that she'd be like, she'd be so anti him killing misery, but it's like, well, but you wrote it still canon, even though you burned oh, it. Oh, you know, like, listen, it's listen, ridiculous. You, listen, Annie Wilkes is the type of person that detests episode nine but has to begrudgingly accept it because in their mind, it's canon. I was just about to make that exact <laughs> yeah, comparison. Yeah, yes. Yes. It's, it's um, just like a, it's like a, I don't care how much I hate episodes like seven through nine or how much I hate episode nine. Like I'm going to acknowledge it as canon. I won't acknowledge it as canon, but it's, it's Annie, Annie's like fanaticism is really interesting. Um, like if, if, you know, I'm trying like there there should be like a, a a remake of this with uh JK Rowling and then oh. someone just like makes her burn cursed child. Oh god. <laughs> I, I would make her burn cursed child. Yeah. Um, but Paul asks Annie to have dinner with him, and Annie is just smitten. She cannot wait. Yes. Uh I mean it's more, you know, Paul manipulating her, and his yes. plan is to drug her during this. Um so they kind of enter the dining room where he sees that she has like a shrine to him, um, which comes into play later when Buster shows up. We'll talk about it then. It's kind of funny. Um, just a very obvious shrine to Paul. Yeah, um, and he is like, you know, go get some candles um, so we can have candles when we you know toast our wine and while she's away he puts all of the medicine that he's been stashing away into her wine swirls it around um but she knocks the glass over and ruins all of his plans yeah i i find this scene kind of puzzling uh because it comes right after uh kind of the, the scene before where paul's trying to get back to the bedroom in time and it's like any anyone who's watched a movie before knows that like, you know, we're, we're about halfway through. Like Paul's not going to, you know, beat Annie now. Um, this the, the whole dinner scene to me feels kind of lifeless and tepid because we know Paul's not going to succeed. And on top of that, we don't really learn any information about either of them uh, throughout this dinner. Um, so I, I just I don't know why. I think the scene before uh, is so effective uh, in terms of ramping up the tension. Mm -hmm. Whereas this scene feels really kind of lifeless and pointless. I don't know what you thought about that it. That is exactly how I felt about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, Cause honestly, truly we, nothing is advanced, right? We don't get any new information really. We don't. And, and 
I, I couldn't think of another example to prep for this episode, but I mean, this, the idea of trying to get the better of your captor and then failing either because they figure out what you're doing or something happens that, you know, like, like this, you know, she, she foils him without realizing she's foiled his plan. It, it just, it happens in so many movies. And I think I was just like, it didn't need to be in this movie. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I feel like the movie is smarter than that in, in most other areas. Yes. Um, I feel like this is maybe like Rob Reiner, you know, broad appeal kind of things. Like, well, you know, there has to be a scene like that. So oh, I think you, I know, I think you could also make the argument that it like may kind of echo uh, the scene at the very end with him in a restaurant, but I, I don't think they do enough to like cement the connection between those two things. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But um, however, uh, after this, we kind of get uh, like maybe what, like the end of Act Two, you would say, Paul. Yeah, uh, Act they, Two is very quick. Yeah, they arrive kind of at this like flow state. We get a montage where we see Paul working on the novel. We see Annie reading it. She's seeming to be uh, like happy and liking it. Um, Paul actually seems happy. We see him kind of working out with the typewriter as he's typing. We see outside the weather is changing. It's less kind of winter time and more spring. We see him shoulder pressing the typewriter. Yeah, we see, yes, we see him getting physically stronger. Um, the other kind of interesting thing that I only really noticed as I, I watched this movie uh, later on um, is we can see, uh, they specifically show Paul uh, typing, getting frustrated, pulling the papers out of the typewriter, throwing them away and starting over. Um, I, I didn't really think about this a lot uh, when I'd watched it before, but I think that one action is really significant because it shows us that Paul, this is a novel that Paul cares about now. Um, he's not just cranking out whatever he comes to his head to appease Annie. Like he is invested in this novel too. Um, and I think it's kind of weird that like, this is kind of the point in the plot where like everyone's happy. Um, like Paul is happy working on the novel He's getting stronger physically. Annie is happy. Paul's doing what she wants him to do. He's not complaining. She's getting chapters of this book. Um, Like it's this really weird high point um, that I think is even more effective because you know it's all going to come crumbling down into Act 3. It's interesting why he's so happy because given what he does at the end with the manuscript... Why would he be trying so hard? I mean, she's reading it, so she has he has to convince her that he's trying. Based on what Paul knows of where he is, who Annie is, and what resources he has, I think this is a decent question. Do you think Paul, knowing where you know all this is leading to, do you think he expect to, expects to survive? Or do you think he kind of assumes he's going to die and just wants to take Annie out with him? That's a good question. Um, I actually thought that he thought there was hope the entire time. Yeah, I, it's tough. I, I, I see him as having hope, but I also see him as being realistic enough to kind of understand that, you know, like odds are we are both going down, um, but that he at least wants to take her down with him. Yeah. Yeah. But we get, uh, we get a scene of Annie feeling a little, a little blue. Yeah, she uh, walks into the room looking really depressed. Um, she's like, here's your pills. Um, and she shows that she has a gun and talks about how she is suicidal and how she's sad that once 
he is done with the novel, she doesn't say like you'll leave, right? She just says things will change or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and it's it's very you, there's so much meaning behind those words. Like they both know it. It's like w- things cannot continue the way they've been going. Yeah. The the hyper intelligent psychopath Annie knew the entire time that she was going to have to like kill him or something. I agree. But yeah. I don't think that that's the Annie that we have. I think that she truly is like somewhat making this up as she goes. And she's I, just realizing Oh, like the fun, my playtime is almost over. And now I need to think about what happens next. And she's now depressed the thought that she might have to kill him. I don't think that she had this planned. I don't think she know. like, I think she is, she is smart, but she is not so smart that she planned every little bit of this out. I disagree. Uh, I think the second she took him, she knew she was going to kill him. Um, because of her history with the babies. I think if that wasn't there, then I would give her a little more leeway that she was making up as she went along. Mm-hmm. Um, because of her past history, I kind of, I, I think on some level, she always knew she would kill him um, just because that's, she just, she clearly has power control issues. Um, and I, I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine her ever letting him go. Even with the infant thing, I, I still just felt that she was, so unstable and just kind of going with the flow in a way that psychopaths do, you know, like her, she's such a fan. She's so childlike. And that like actually is part of who she is. It was not a, not an act that in her mind for a time, she would like put out the thought of him, of how this would end. She was just enjoying the time. And like a child, she's just like, so sad when something that she's having so much fun with is going to end. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, I mean, I I think that's a really a strength of the film that it doesn't really land one way or the other um, in a lot of ways. Um, I I like the ambiguity of it. Um, Yeah. Because I I think that she's really like an inkblot you know, like in terms of uh, her motives, right? You look at her her performance and her actions and it's like, I don't know, you kind of see what you think is there. Yeah. Um, which yeah. kind of, which again, like makes the character so frightening. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the scene, she, it's raining, uh, storming. Uh, she leaves the house uh, in the middle of the night and he takes action he runs to the kitchen not runs you know rolls to the kitchen uh and grabs a knife and waits yep um or or he stashes it under his bed yes yeah uh and then we get to the hobbling scene we uh we sure do um yeah uh why don't you tell us about it and then i'll kind of tell us about it and then i'll kind of tell tell you like my thoughts and this is easily the most famous scene of the film i would say um and for good reason i think it's the best scene in the movie yeah Um, tell us about it so she he wakes up with her just standing directly and it's like the tightest frame of like on her face that we've ever seen the entire movie she is like Mm. staring 
down at him, like yes. menacingly. She knows that he's been getting up and got out. Uh, and the reason she knows is because the penguin that he mm-hmm. knocked over and put back is facing a different direction than before, which is bananas that she would remember that. The penguin, um, al- the penguin always faces true south. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, and also, you know, he like, she start, you know, starts threatening him and he reaches with a knife under the bed and she's like looking for this and she found the knife. Um, I think it'd be really easy to find a knife missing. Um, <laughs> I mean, especially like the, the signature knife in your butcher block. Yeah. Um, and she, and, and I should mention that maybe not right at this moment, but at some point in the very near, near future during this scene, and this is my favorite part about the entire scene, Moonlight Sonata starts mm, playing. Yeah. I love that song yeah. so much. Uh, and I think it's used very effectively here. Um, so she explains to him um, about, I don't, I don't know the exact story, but the, the gist of it is, and you feel please, the Kimberly um, Diamond Mine. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to talk about that story? So I don't yeah. So essentially, uh, and I don't know how true this is, uh, but the story she tells is that um, if they caught uh, the slave workers stealing diamonds, uh, they didn't want to kill them because that would be the, a waste of a good worker. Uh, but they also couldn't let them be able to escape. Um, so they would hobble them. Um, which means they would basically shatter their ankles um, so that they are able to physically get around, um, but kind of never be able to run and be disfigured for the rest of their lives. Yes. Uh, And so she hobbles him. She puts a wood block between his ankles and takes a mallet and breaks both his ankles. We see the first one. We see the impact. Very unsettling, especially for me, who gets nauseous at the sight of things bending the way they're not supposed to bend. Uh, it's, it's... Uh, and then she does the other one, which we do not see. Um, interesting choice to only show the first one, and not the second. To me, I, I feel like if I'm directing this, I'm going all in or nothing. Um I, I, it's, I think it's like I, it's like I, showing it's like it's like Reservoir Dogs. Quentin Tarantino deciding to show the cop's ear get cut off and then not show the second one. I'm like, what? Why? I actually think I know why. why? Um, I think in this specific instance, I think because Reiner knew that uh, showing something like that would make people turn away and close their eyes. That I think he didn't on the first one and purposely didn't show the second one because I think what he wanted people's eyes on. Where that super what would be that super tight zoom in on Annie's face, and if you showed both, you'd have a large segment of the audience with their eyes closed and their heads turned, missing that shot. True, but I guess I, if I'm the audience, I'm expecting to, them to show the second one also. So if I don't like the first one, I'm already turned away. Oh, true. Um, Either and way, I actually, and I have seen this scene before, and I forgot that they don't show the second one. Uh, so I was expecting another one and was relieved when they didn't do that. But then I realized, like, ah, I feel like you should have just shown it. But um, yeah. Uh, and then she tells him she loves him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> God, God, I love you. Is yeah. What she says yep. um, some things that I noticed uh, just having seen this so many times now. Uh, what I think is interesting uh, is two things. Um, what Annie is wearing 
Um, she is very put together. Um, she's yes. wearing a nice dress. Uh, she is wearing the cross. Uh, that essentially she is wearing almost an identical outfit to one of the first outfits we saw her in at the beginning of the film mm-hmm. um, when she was uh, being a very helpful figure to Paul. Um, so it's almost like she has returned to that same helpful attitude and persona that she had at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Now here, when she's doing this like horrific inhuman thing to him. Also too, I almost feel like from here on out, because all the pretense has fallen away, right? Like we know you're getting out. We knew what you were doing. We can't let this go on. I'm going to hobble you. You're going to finish this book for me, especially what, when things happen with Buster, like it's all out on the table now. Um, Annie from here on out until she really loses it. I feel like she is like cruising speed Annie here. Like she is bebopping and scotting and making moves. And she is like just dancing with whoever crosses her path. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is like Annie operating at 100%, which is really weird. Um, but like, wouldn't you say that from here on out in the film, like, th- this is like Annie, like, being herself? Yeah. And despite the fact that I still, like, have been maintaining that she's been genuine, that she didn't, like, have all this, like, planned out, and that she's not putting on, like, a show for him, she does feel, or she does, she does, like, react like she is kind of like shed like a weight um and now she's kind of like you know what i'm just angry now and i'm just gonna be me and um you know she just kind of i think she's i think in this moment actually she has come to peace with the idea that he's going to die i don't think that she was like even if she had been premeditating it which i don't fully acknowledge that she had that plan from the very beginning but I think that my, in my view, she realized that she was going to have to kill him, was upset by that. And this is the moment where she's like, yeah, that's okay. I can exactly. kill you. Exactly. Yeah. And I think her hobbling him was almost like a stepping stone. Like once yeah. she did that, she's like, okay, I can do that. Like I can kill him. Mm-hmm. Also, I think it's very clear and she even says it, but um, I, I think she knew she was going to kill herself. Like, I don't think she she had any illusions about surviving any of this mm-hmm. um but uh our uh, act three begins right because yes. uh buster has finally gotten wise to annie through some misery related sleuthing that we don't really need to worry or get into here yeah um he kind of figured us out that annie may be a possible suspect yeah uh, and pays pays her a visit so what's that uh what's that visit like um i will admit not as tense as i was hoping it would be um and maybe that's because I would say this is a trope of law enforcement coming to help to investigate and the killer, be it like a serial killer or, I mean, this Friday the 13th, this happens like Silence of the Lambs, Lambs, Dick Halloran in the shining. Yeah. Right. Like, even though he's not law enforcement, but you know what I mean? Like coming to check on the the good guys that, and, and getting killed. Uh, so yeah, so Buster is exploring the house. He starts questioning Annie. Annie is smart. She doesn't try to hide the fact that she's obsessed with Paul. She tells him all about how she's obsessed with Paul. She like shows him the shrine um, and says like, you know, he, you know, Paul's disappeared. And so I knew that God was telling me that I need to like learn everything I can about Paul and write his, like, a, a book in like his honor almost. Um, so that would explain the typewriter. Um, it's an, it's an interesting cover story actually. Um, 
it, I mean, it, I, and it's, just, I like, it's just like I am a little bit off my rocker, Mister uh, Policeman. Um, but I'm not a killer. I just am obsessed. And yeah, I, but you know. and I I love what it shows about Annie that like uh, she is like crazy like a fox though. Like yeah. she she is. Able, that's why I said like this is Annie operating at like 100 percent peak efficiency. Right. Like she's lying and she they're not great lies, but they're like good enough lies, and she's you know getting him out of here. Yeah, I, I was. I had made a note to myself. I was like, "This." I'm pretty impressed with this. It's a somewhat believable story. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But yeah. So, bef- sorry. Before that, like when um, Buster was driving up the road, Paul sees and she freaks out. She like drugs him, um, and throws him in the basement. So this whole time, Paul's in the basement, and Buster's exploring the house. And after Buster leaves, uh, Paul is able to make a noise. I think he knocks over the charcoal grill. Yes. And Buster goes back um, and he does not answer the door. Doesn't know where she is. He goes to the basement, sees Paul and Annie is behind him and shoots and kills Buster with a shotgun. Yes. Right through the chest. Yes. Yeah. Um, And this is really, I mean, this is just the then the movie just kind of snowballs from here. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So basically uh, Buster's death begins kind of the end clock uh, ticking, right? So, Annie and Paul both know that Buster going missing can't last forever, that sooner or later someone will come looking for him. So they have probably like maybe, I don't know, 18 hours, 12 hours uh, before that happens. Yeah. Um, So Annie kind of explains like, here's what we're going to do. You're going to finish the novel. Um, We are going to celebrate and then, you know, I'll read the end and then we will kill ourselves. Um, And Paul's like, hey, sounds great. Um, But he tells her, you know, everything has to be perfect. So again, um, she knows his end of uh, novel routine. Um, so she has the champagne ready. Um, and then she kind of runs to, to get everything that they'll need. Paul uh, grabs the bottle of lighter fluid uh, from the basin and stuffs it down his pants. So while Annie is getting everything ready uh, for their celebration with the champagne and the cigarette, um, Paul douses the manuscript in lighter fluid. When Annie comes back in, Um, he dramatically lights it on fire, uh, telling her that basically she'll never find out what happens at the end of Misery. Um, So he starts uh, the manuscript on fire, uh, bashing her head in with the typewriter. Yes. Um, Yeah, it's almost like a metaphor about an author being forced to create something against (laughs) his will. Yep. Uh, Maybe authors don't like that. Um, So Annie, of course, so obsessed with the the end of the novel that she, she must know what happens. She dives on the ground uh, to try and rescue the novel from the flames. Um, as I said, Paul hits her with a typewriter. They get into a very, um, I put in the notes, sexually charged soft body fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, according to uh, the special features of Rob Reiner uh, that, I, that, I, that I watched from the like 2004 DVD version of this movie that I have. Yeah. Um, they wanted it to be a very, the kind of the sexual culmination of all this tension between um, him and Annie, right? So uh, also, and both are, neither of them are physical specimens, right? Paul has been previously injured. Annie's like strong, but she's not an I mean, intelligent she carries fighter. him over, she like fireman carries him over her back when she saves him from the wreckage. Yes, but <laughs> like- brings him to I, the basement. I think he intel the Rob Reiner intelligently realized like th- this cannot be like a smackdown like this cannot be like a a clean yeah fight like this has to be a really charged dirty fight so a lot of the shots are of them on each other and kind of humping each other and grat like um, uh, just 
very sexual position, like sexually charged positions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also tying it to again, we kind of brought it up before, but even Paul's celebration, right? There's something very sexual about it, right? It's like the ejaculation of the popping champagne. Um, it's like this sexual release of like this new creation. Um, so do with that what what you will, English majors. Um, but he winds up killing Annie. Um, or I'm sorry, he well killing Annie is yeah. There's kind of two things, but yeah. he kind of initially downs Annie by cramming the flaming manuscript pages down her throat. And I think after this point, or right before it, she shot him in the shoulder with her gun. Correct. Yeah, that is correct. Um, what the fuck? Um, it's yeah. So. Again, this is another body horror thing where there's just like a shot for like a second of her with just flaming pages like gat like just stuffed in her mouth, and I'm just yeah. like, Jesus Christ, like, <laughs> this is so much. That, that was uh, the, the the moment that I was like wanted to cheer for him the most. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, it's <laughs> it's her. very yeah, it's very intense. Um, and then of course there's the like jump scare moment where she like kind of lurches back up, um, but he he downs her with a. Uh, smack with from the typewriter is that correct uh there's a she has like a little statue of her pig miss oh yeah uh, like a little pet pig that she named after misery and he uh takes this like it's like a how could i it's like a paperweight or like a door jam or something like and he smacks her in the head with it and finishes her off yes misery the pig we i don't know that we mentioned that in the outline but she has a pig named misery awesome yeah um all right so uh we cut to later uh paul has been rescued um, he is at lunch with his agent, um, played again by Lauren Bacall. Um, and she, through dialogue, we kind of learned that, uh, Paul, this is sometime later. Um, he has published, uh, you know, an, another novel. Um, people know who he is as a result of his experience. Um, and she kind of, uh, broaches the topic of him writing a book about what happened to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of makes a comment about for her, how for her, it's just kind of about the money. She kind of is like, well, yeah. Um, and for him, he's, he, he's not ready for that yet. Right. Like it has, that experience has not left him. Um, the book, or I'm sorry, the film ends with, uh, their waitress, um, who looks vaguely like Annie, but a younger version of her, kind of the same haircut, same hair color, um, telling Paul that she's his number one fan. Um, she brandishes a butcher knife, um, and smiles at him. But first he sees and he tells like the, he tells his agent, like, I, I see Annie sometimes, or like, he's like, he's having like hallucinations because he actually sees, I mean, Kathy Bates appears like in this scene, like he, when he first looks at this waitress, he sees actually Annie. Correct. And then when she gets closer, it's just like a younger woman. Yeah. And, um, uh, the song I'll be seeing you in all the same familiar places, uh, you know, chimes in, which they had listened to at dinner. Um, it's, it's very cheesy, uh, but I thought it was effective and chilling. Um, you know, again, it's, I think it's one of those like broad audience appeal things. Um, I think it probably like Ari Aster wouldn't do this. Um, but I think Rob Reiner, uh, for this film found it to be an effective ending. I, I like it. What do you think? I think it's cheesy. Um, but I I don't know how else you're going to end the movie though. Like, I mean the, this, I, sorry. So let me just. The musical choice, I think, is a little like cheesy. I, seeing Annie again is a little cheesy. I would have rather just he goes to lunch with his agent. His agent says, write a book about this. He says, no. And this woman comes up to him and she's like, she's like, Paul, Paul, um, whatever your last name is, like, I'm your biggest fan. And he, and I think his last night line is just like, 
you know, that's very sweet or that's very nice of you yeah. or some, something like that. Like that's, I just would have ended it like that. Just no Annie in that scene, no musical, no, no music thing. Just, ah, that's how. I Although I, I was thinking about two things. One, I was thinking about it and they reference how like everyone knows about this. Like this is a known thing. Yeah. You see that Paul walks with a cane. Like he's, he's not recovered from being hobbled. Um, so if that's, if that was the case, like this is national news, right? And this mm-hmm. woman is apparently his biggest fan. Shouldn't she know that saying I'm your number one fan is probably going to be incredibly triggering for him? That's <laughs> like, a great point. Shouldn't she know that that's like the worst thing you could say? Yeah. Um, you, you'd think. Apparently not. Yeah. Um, but uh, I like I like how it's almost like a stupid almost. It reminded me of Event, event Horizon, right? Yeah. The ending is like, have they really escaped? Yeah. Um, and it almost ends like that. And it's like, well, yes, yes. Yeah, of course, he, of course. He's he actually fine. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, uh, I found it funny that they, they kind of do one of those fake outs with it. Uh, yeah. With it. But uh, that was misery. That was, uh, that was the plot. Yeah. Um, um, I can run through my likes and dislikes. Uh, my, you know, really quick. Um, I talked about a lot of it before. Um, you know, I like how, Quickly, the car crash happens. I like that Annie's creepy from the get-go. It's not like, there's not like a moment where things turn all of a sudden where she's like, oh, she's just a normal person to, like, it's really clear that she's, you know, bad news. Um, I like the, <laughs> just little moments that we didn't talk about. She, she keeps calling him a dirty bird. Uh, oh, yeah, we haven't talked about her I like that she of... doesn't use profanity. She calls people yeah. like a poop. And then at the very end, when she's fighting with him, she calls him a cocksucker. A cocksucker, yes. Um, I like I thought that was neat. Um I love the sheriff and his wife. I love them like you know, bickering. Uh I also really like there's a shot where while the sheriff is investigating like the side of the road, um the camera like approaches the sheriff as if it's just like a camera approaching, but then you realize that the camera is like from the perspective of Annie's car and it like flips around and shows you that that's Annie driving and realizes that people are on to Paul's disappearance and where he might be located. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was, it was, um, it, it was an effective uh, movie. Um, when it comes to things I think don't work, um, we didn't talk about the score really before, but I'm actually not the biggest fan of when the score is leading you to feel certain ways in a horror movie. Yeah. Like when, when Annie is getting angrier, like the strings are almost getting like more intense in the, in the score. And like, it, it's very, it's a very like stereotypical thriller, like score of like the eighties, nineties where like, really like the the score is telling you how you should be reacting to things and it's, it's not it's, letting you react to like and i think there's a lot of points in this movie where silence would have been much better i agree it's it's a little overwrought it's a little overproduced um it's a little like the sound mixing i think it kind of takes over and i blame um, rob reiner for all of it <laughs> i mean listen at the end of the day he was the director so he was i can't change that but no. it's under one of my uh dislikes i i just i'm just not a big i don't really think rob reiner adds much to the world like i feel like anyone could have done princess bride and anyone i i think this movie could have been directed by someone better who was available like i don't i really don't think <laughs> rob reiner has added 
things to my life where I'm like, I'm glad Rob Reiner gave me this you're, or this. Uh, see, I, if there's one takeaway from this this episode, I think it's that you're coming down on a very anti-Rob Reiner. Uh, I am. I, that was really here. my big one of my biggest takeaways. Yeah. And I'm just like, I enjoyed this movie. It's like, I'm like, it's a shame that Rob Reiner directed it. <laughs> you know, I'm going to I'm gonna go with Outside of North and uh, When Harry Met Sally. I'm a big Rob Reiner fan. Teach their own. Yeah. 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 Um, in terms of, is that what you have for what works? And what yeah. I, I, I'd say I, it, I talked a little bit more about like some of the things I thought didn't work as well. You know, I, I think it, it isn't, we said overproduced. I think that's a good way of putting it. Like it's an overproduced horror movie. And in that, like, and this is, this is more nitpicky and personal than it is like a, a, an objective criticism. Really. It's just, I like when a movie can freak me out. I've seen enough horror movies now where something like this is not going to do that at all. Like it's going to give me some body horror moments, but that's it. This is just like a, like a nice thriller to me that has like good examples of tension. It's like, if I had seen it when I was younger, like if I was 10 or 11, like you, it would have really affected me a lot. Um, I just think that it being overproduced makes it significantly less frightening. Um, and I'm okay with that though, because I think that it's still like well put together overall. Like, it's just not, I just don't think it's a very effective horror movie. I think it is a, it has good tension. It's a good thriller, but I would not, if I was making a list of horror movies, I would almost not want to put this on it. Um, and I actually feel the same way about silence of the lambs. I don't really like that. It's called a horror movie. Um, it's just, this this and that I just seem like a different genre to me. They're just like a creepy psychological thriller. I would say that's fair. Yeah, I, I would say that's fair. I'll um, I'll start with what doesn't work because um, I agree with you pretty much on everything that does work. Um, I, I will agree with you, like we've talked about. I think the broad appeal uh, of this film and the broader tone um, can definitely work against it. Um, however. I will say that um, while the broader tone uh, kind of takes away from the intensity of the movie a bit, I would agree with you on that. I think the broader tone is part of why this is a movie I've returned to so often. Yes. Um, like a lot of those movies are, right? Like I think if you look at Misery and if you look at a movie like Seven, right, by David Fincher, mm -hmm. they're both psychological thriller films. But I would, I think almost anyone who's seen both those films would agree that Misery is made with a much broader appeal and audience in mind Absolutely. than Seven, right? Um, however, I think they're both amazing films. I think Seven is a stronger film overall than Misery. However, at the same time, I'm going to go back and rewatch seven way less than I'll go back and rewatch something like this. I would definitely say this is objectively more rewatchable than seven. I will revisit seven more than this. I plan to rewatch this movie. Uh, I think I'll enjoy doing it, but I also I'll rewatch. I mean, I was about to say girl, the dragon tattoo, which I was like, Oh, that's another David Fincher uh, movie. The, the, the American remake of girl, the dragon tattoo. That's a dark movie. I have, seen, I have seen that, that movie like 30 to 40 times. I love that movie. It's, I, 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 would, I love it. I've only seen it uh, maybe twice, but uh, maybe for the show, I would definitely uh, watch yeah. that again and talk about it. Um, and I'll watch Seven a lot because 
I love that movie too. But it is not, it's not an easy rewatch. No. This is a, this is no. a, I totally agree with you. This is a, the type, the way this movie was made, the way it presents everything, it, it is a, it's made for a wider appeal. Uh, and, it, and it succeeds, I think. So good on it for that. Indeed. Um, I, but I will say that that's, that's what doesn't work. Also, we, we talked about it, the dinner scene, I think you could excise entirely. Or I'd, I'd actually like to keep the dinner scene in, but I just wish that we, we kind of learned something from the dialogue then, because that doesn't really happen. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, sorry, I'll let you finish. And there's one more thing I, I actually meant to mention in terms of um, what doesn't work. Um, that's, that's kind of it. Uh, okay. like all the stuff we talked about, I'll just talk about what does work, uh, that I like, uh, some things that we, uh, kind of mentioned, but didn't super clarify. Um, I, I like that, uh, certain parts of the character's motivations are, um, unknowable. Um, I like that the movie is okay, uh, with large chunks of silence. I feel like this is the kind of movie that a lesser director or writer would have put like a voiceover for Paul's character. So that like, we know exactly what Paul is thinking and feeling. Oh, that would have been um, terrible. It would have been terrible, but I can't you see a lesser, less confident uh, team doing something like that? Um, I like that in this film, you don't always know what James Conn is thinking. You don't always know what um, Kathy Bates is, you know, Annie is thinking. Um, I've seen this movie so many times and it's still like, I don't, you know, watching James Conn, like, I don't know, like at what point his character kind of pieces certain things together. Um, cause it's not clear in his, in his performance. And, and I, I really enjoy that ambiguity. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you had one more thing that doesn't work, right? I did. And, and as you were just talking about this, I, I kind of realized maybe it's not really a thing that doesn't work. I think it's a, there was a moment like halfway through the movie where I was like, man, I wish, I wish we did know more about these characters, but I don't know if you can really do this movie as effectively. Like it, where do you put that in without it seeming like a, like a information dump? Like, I, I don't like, right. but, and I don't want it to be like the sheriff's talking about them. Like I would have, at first I was thinking like, I want to see a scene between Annie and him that where I get like them talking, like getting to know each other better in a real way, like a real human connection, despite the fact that it's antagonistic. Like, which is where that dinner, that dinner scene could have, it could have gone that way. And, but I, and I would have wanted it even more than that, but I also just don't think that you can get, you can do that and have it be like, this is an hour and 45 minute long movie. That's good. I don't think this movie would be as good if it was a two hour movie or longer. No, I agree. No, um, no. So I guess I take it back. Yeah. And I'll kind of, maybe this would be a good spot to kind of talk about comparisons between the book uh, and the movie. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the, the big skeletal beats are the same between the book and the film. Um, I think it's one of those, this, this is a film that's one of those rare films that is probably better than the book it's based on. Uh, one of the, the rare ones, probably like Jurassic Park is the only one I can think of off the top of my head where the, the movie is just kind of unequivocally better than the book. Um, but uh, what the book does that's, that's interesting uh, is kind of two things. One is that large passages of the book are the new misery book that Paul is writing. Um, so mm -hmm. you get to read kind of what he's writing and the misery book that he's writing is really dark and weird and fucked up. And even Annie comments it, comments upon it in the novel. Uh, and Paul is like, this is what I'm writing. This is what you, you wanted me to write misery. This is what I'm writing. And so reading the novel, reading the passages of this misery book that he's writing 
is kind of this glimpse into his mind and his character and kind of where he's at, uh, which, you know, you can't really do in a film. Um, the other thing that's different uh, is that you do get more backstory specifically about Paul. Um, in the film, Paul, you know, as we talked about, is very reactionary. We don't really know much about Paul, um, other, you know, who he is as a person, other than that he's, you know, resourceful um, and clever. Um, but in the book, we find out more about like his childhood and his background and things like that. I don't really know that it adds much. Like I can't even remember most of those details off the top of my head. So clearly it didn't stick in my mind. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know that it would add anything um, to the film. Um, I, I think Paul, I think Paul's, James Conn's performance as Paul carries a lot of the character um, I think if it were in the hands of a lesser actor, we would maybe want to know more about him. Yeah. Um, but it, Khan, it just like infuses him with so much personality um, that the movie kind of co- is able to coast on that a little bit better. Hmm. So. Shall we move to the categories? Oh, let's do it. Uh, what's our first category? Well, I have a special one for this episode. Yeah, please. Uh, not one we would carry on. It'd be really weird if this was a continual segment. Um, which author, director, or writer would you most want to do this to? <laughs> uh, like produce a work for me. Um, okay, could so could it be any any media franchise? Could it be like a manga? Could it be like a video game? Could Anything you want. Book. Ooh, okay. <clears throat> Interesting. All right. Um, do you want to come back to that? You want to think uh, do, about do, it a little do, bit? Do you, do you have an answer? Because uh, if you have an answer, why don't you give yours? Oh, um, I didn't I didn't actually come up with one that wasn't like a jo- joke answer. I mean, it's a joke question, but I thought it would be entertaining to try to do it to David Lynch. You wouldn't get anything out of him. Oh, no, it would be, it would be such a waste of time. You would just let him go. It'd be like, I yeah. can't stand this anymore. Just get uh, out of my house. Yeah. Um, now my joke answer is uh, R.L. Stein um, because you know, like to just have him locked away in my basement uh, yeah. and make him produce Goosebumps books for me would would be great. Um, but I almost would rather do like a Mia, like a Miyazaki, and I want him to make not a Dark Souls like four, but if I just had him trapped in the basement, I'd almost like wanna um, kind of like Annie tells Paul like different rules about how he is and isn't allowed to write. Uh, I would do the same. I would do the same thing. I'd be like Miyazaki-san, like, I love what you're doing, but I looked at this latest level and you're going to have to tone down the boss's uh, crit damage by like 36%. Yeah. That's just how how it's going to have to be Miyazaki-san. Yeah. Um, And so I think that's what I would do. There's, there's kind of like a, a sequel to this where somebody kidnaps Nomura, but doesn't have him do anything. They just kidnap him. So he'll stop. (laughs) <laughs> yeah or how like he'll just keep producing but um like you'll throw all of his finished like work into a volcano yeah he's like oh you're my biggest fan and it's like yeah. no 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 no, no. no i'm just no. taking you out no yeah um so in terms of video games uh if we were to turn this film into a video game yeah um i know what i would do uh it's kind of the boring stock answer we frequently have but I would persona no well well <laughs> can't really uh, do it with this no, I would do a management sim. Um, and oh, okay. you would be you would be managing all sorts of different things. So it would be like Paul's various. Uh, it would almost be like The Sims, right? Um, you'd be managing various different, uh, you know, like uh, traits, um, and then making sure Paul has everything he needs to write. 
uh, make sure that he gets his meds at a certain time, make sure that he sleeps. Um, and then maybe Annie would come in and be kind of the RNG element that would like, you know, shake things up. Um, have you ever played a game called Wall Street Kid for NES? No. Do you know of Wall Street Kid? I do not know of Wall, Wall Street, Street Kid. We, 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 we will do an episode on Wall Street Kid. I am announcing it now. I look forward I, to I, it. I don't know when, but Wall Street Kid is essentially the plot is you have inherited a bunch of money from your rich uncle um, and you have to make like $10 million to buy a mansion and propose to your fiance uh, before like the end of like two months or whatever. Um, and I, I almost imagine this is like a Wall Street Kid alike. Wow. Yeah. What, I to all the Wall Street Kid fans out there, I can, listen. Just get, I, get I ready because we're gonna do it. I I am telling you, if I wouldn't be surprised if someone out there in Listenerland has heard of Wall Street Kid, it's actually I, not that crazy. It wouldn't surprise me either. Um, I'm glad. I'm also. I like when you and I do different things for the video game one because sometimes I feel like we're we're gonna end up having the same ones. Um, I did a like playable novel, like Telltale Games type thing. Like, a, um, so you're kind of like Paul though, with more like a first person perspective and they're, you know, dialogue trees and such, your answers can change how Annie reacts and what she does. It's almost like a choose your own adventure type, right? Um, you got to think of the right things to say so you can get Annie to react in certain ways, like give you more pills that you can store, store away, but there'll be multiple options for escape. So you don't have to get the pills, things like that. And, you know, saying the wrong thing can get you killed or, you know. One now, of those games where there's a lot of different bad endings. As I'm saying out loud, could we do a Home Alone alike? Uh, and by that, I mean the Home Alone game for Genesis and SNES. Absolutely. <laughs> where you set up the traps around the house. Yes. Because um, that would also be great. Uh, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. Um, which one are we doing next? Um, uh, let's do fan fiction corner next because let's save our, our other uh corner for the end. Because oh, like you want to skip network. ahead to fan fiction corner, huh? Yeah, well, I, I'm gonna okay, so I have to be totally honest with you. I, I came up lacking in both corners this week, uh, because fan fiction corner left me uh, left me a little wanting. Um, Kingdom Hearts Corner left me a little wanting. I'll leave it up to you, my friend. Which would you like to do first? Wait, wait. I'm just, I'm, I'm just forewarning you, you that you just I don't... weren't. You, you didn't feel the creative juices with Kingdom Hearts. So I, I, I tried. I thought about it. I thought about it mm. long and hard on how to make this work. And it's just, again, this is a really weird story on paper, right? Then it's I've, like... I've got the answer for you. I've oh, got, right. I've got please, the Kingdom Hearts please, one. But first, please. first answer me this: Would you like to live in this world? uh well it's our well here okay actually that's 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 a deeper question than you think because this is a stephen king work uh you know at first blush i'd say well it's our world so sure that's fine. no I, but I, it's not i yeah. like that you yeah but it's not i was um, hoping that you would say yes yeah. for whatever reason and then i'd be like gotcha <laughs> right but pennywise is real <laughs> yeah because this is part of stephen king's multiverse so i would say no uh, because we got like Pennywise and ghouls and dark towers and low men in yellow coats. And we got all kinds of crazy Stephen King nonsense. Uh, so I would say, no, I do not want to live in this world. You are a wise man. I However, also would not for that reason. If, if you lived in this world, you would be able to read the misery novels. Whereas for right now, we just have to imagine what they're like. I'm okay. Imagining don't need to read. 
Those you saw the covers of those books. They look terrible. I love I love the covers. They're great. <laughs> also, uh, I think it's funny. One of the changes in the book uh, between the book and the movie that they don't mention is uh, the movie. Whenever he kind of references any of the plot points uh, of the book in the movie, it's like this very overwrought historical uh, romance thing, right? Like there are characters like Windthorn and there's long lost like children and things like that, right? In the in the book, the misery novel he's writing is this really weird, like dark, intense. Uh, novel where they like go to Africa and there's like a bee cult and like all this weird shit um, that I, I just I, I don't know what to do with that I just really like it <laughs> all right um, do you want to do Kingdom Hearts then yeah uh, let's so start with I, it. I I thought about this and I'm like how do you like how do you even do it um, because like there's nowhere to go in this world like for for Sora and crew so I'm like, I don't know. Would you? Would you almost be like a thousand acre woods thing? That's and exactly like, what I said. Yeah, but yes. then I'm like, but but the problem is though, like we don't like in this film. We don't know enough about like misery or like what goes on in a misery book. So that's where you would kind of have to play fast and loose with like the, um, you know, the the rest of the plot. I feel like you're giving Kingdom Hearts too much credit. Like they've set a bar that's high <laughs> that you need to meet. You, you know do what? Not- Maybe I. Maybe I am. You are. You're giving too yeah. much. You're, you're, don't put this burden on your head. No, this, no. I want me to tell you what mine is, and you can realize that the bar is not very high. Yeah. This please, is exactly please. what Kingdom Hearts would do with something please. like this. So I said, like a smaller arena, like a hundred acre wood. Um, the t- so it's twisted in a way. So what you're doing is you run into Annie. You never see Paul for a while, and and he's just like, hey, I've lost pages to this manuscript that my my favorite author is like working on for me. Can you collect the pages for me? So you just do these like dumb games. Uh, you run around like the house or like maybe like her farm or whatever she is. Like, can you, you know, get, get these pages for me for my favorite book? You bring your, bring it back to her and then you stumble upon Paul. You realize she's keeping him hostage and that you've just been, um, you know, tricked by Annie and she like burns the pages or something like that. Uh, and then you fight like a heartless demon version of Annie. Yeah, that that's you know what you're right. You nailed it. I don't. I really don't know what else. And even and, I, and even part of me thinks that what what I just came up with is probably too good for Kingdom Hearts. It probably. wouldn't. I, I, I not not really. How else would you do it? I mean, there's just really no other way. To do yeah, it. I don't know. The only thing I could think of was like, yeah, you would like play scenes out of the the novel, maybe. Like I I don't know. I had a hard time, but. I was like, well, they made Fantasia work as a level, so yeah, they could probably they could probably pull this off. Um, I also the the Keyblade. I couldn't think of anything like the one I did kind of come up with that is really stupid though is like something about writing, mm-hmm. but it's like, but you can't do like a pen because you write to the typewriter, and then it's like ah, the typewriter Keyblade, I guess. Like, but that I don't know. What, yeah. what did you come up with? This was this was one of the weaker ones. I thought like so my key is called the misery business. Oh, uh, and, or just misery business, not the misery business. Um, and it's just a mallet and there's like a key handle and maybe you could have like some key prongs, like protruding from like the head of the mallet. And then the key chain thing is just a little typewriter. Yeah. Yeah. Which I I'm disappointed to myself. I feel like usually I'm like firing all cylinders for kingdom hearts corner. Uh, and, and this week I, I, and I tried, I really did. I racked my brain and I'm like, I don't know that you can make this really work. 
I think you're right though. You gotta, if you a hundred acre woods it, that's probably the way to go. And then I said the keyhole would be under the bed. Uh, or would the keyhole be the manuscript? That's true. Or is the keyhole just inside our hearts? Or actually, no, here's what it is. The key, the keyhole is the bag. Oh yeah. 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 Um, all right. Fan fiction corner also left me wanting, which is really disappointing guys. Cause this is like one of my favorite movies ever. Um, but I, I couldn't find a lot. Did you find anything? Did you, did you find anything? Worse no, there? uh, I, I focused more. I, I gave up pretty quickly. I must admit, and I just focused on trying to come up with what my fan fiction would be. Yeah, so uh, I think there's a reason for that. So we'll, we'll, we'll discuss it. But I really only found, um, found two worth even mentioning. Um, one is called Misery and the Awakening of the Force. Did you find that one? No, I did not. Yeah, um, it's basically, uh, it, is, it is a crossover technically uh, between uh, Misery and Star Wars. Um, but this, it's unclear because it's only a paragraph long, um, but the description is misery and the beginning of her story on Geonosis. Um, so uh, it's one, again, as I said, one paragraph. Um, in a far, far away galaxy, there is a girl who decide to be one of the most powerful Jedi in the galaxy. After the fall of the Jedi Order, no more Jedi were allowed to be seen in public. Um, Misery was, uh, was the girl's name. Thinking of pride and justice, leaving, living on Geonosis, she was trained by the last remaining survivors of the Republic, trained with old but good equipment. They managed to make her a good apprentice. Um, and that's about it. It's, about, it's a paragraph about Misery, presumably from the Misery novels, mm-hmm. uh, being a surviving Jedi on, on Geonosis. And that's all. That's it. Um, well, I, I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, there's there were some like bad ones. I don't even think I made it that far down the list. Um, like there was like one like called Annie's Childhood. Um, it was just like her father reading misery to her, but like the book wouldn't have existed when she was a kid. It doesn't make any. It was just stupid. There's yeah. There's another one that's uh, very stupid. I only picked it because it's by Sassy Lol Scorpio. Um, the description is Annie Wilkes is obsessed with miseries, so why doesn't she write her own misery stories? Meanwhile, while struggling to overcome writer's block, Paul Sheldon wonders if his fans write stories about his famous characters and what scenarios they came they come up with. So it's basically just about Annie writing her own misery fan fiction, I suppose. Um, do would you like to know um, what uh, what she yells loudly when she has kind of a realization about fan fiction? <laughs> what is that? She yells out, quote, fan fiction is for dirty birdies. Oh, well, yeah. then I'm a dirty birdie. Yeah, yeah. I was I was uh, sorely disappointed in fan fiction corner this That's week. That's very upsetting. However, I think I, I was thinking about it, and I think I know why. Um, I think it's because the reason, like, fan fiction exists is because you have these, these characters, these worlds, these bigger-than-life scenarios, and there's so many unanswered questions and things you, you want to know more about, right? Like... Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Star Trek, Star Wars. These are big Sonic the Hedgehog, right? Yeah. These are big franchises with big like nooks and crannies to explore and you know, these undiscovered stories. I don't think that's there's there's none of that here, right? Like I, I think we know exactly enough of Andy's backstory. I think we know exactly enough of Paul's back. Like, there's nothing about these characters that they could do uh before or after the events of this this story uh that would that would in any way pique my interest. Would you say that's fair? Yes, very. 
they're they're not even they're almost not even operating as characters right they're operating as like like primary forces or ideas right like annie is almost just this force of obsession paul is almost just this force of like survival and creativity they're almost not even like characters they're like they're like uh like cardboard cutouts my, exactly characters. and my fan fiction didn't involve either one of them i just want the spinoff with the sheriff and his wife solving murders oh, together while, yeah. while bickering like an old married couple i would i would watch that like a tv show or something yeah or just an episodic you know yeah novelization so so the, so my idea for the fan fiction which i am deeply shocked does not exist is uh and the reason i said no to living in this world uh, is because like let's bring it into the Stephen King universe, right? Because Mi- Misery doesn't have any like explicit connections, um, and Misery was written at a time before Stephen King had really kind of coalesced the idea that all of the stories were connected. But um, I-, I would say Misery, you know, must be. Um, I would love a fan fiction about like what if Annie is being um, kind of influenced by almost like a Pennywise, yeah, C- Cthulhu elder god buried in the mountains, like in in Colorado. I would love that. Like, yeah. can, can we have some of that, please? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think of that. That's a great one. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's about it for, yeah. uh, for misery, fan fiction, that's, uh, plot, kingdom hearts and otherwise. That's misery. Um, yeah. I, I, I thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to revisit this. Um, thank you for I'm giving me the opportunity to visit it <laughs> because yeah, I, it. I, it's funny. Like, I don't want to say it's not, it wasn't like at the forefront of my mind. Like I'm not going to watch this movie because blah, blah, blah. Like it was just something that I never was like, felt any urgency to watch. And I, but I feel like subconsciously I'm like, how could, could a Rob Reiner movie be? <laughs> I, your Rob Reiner uh, hatred is, this is a real revelation. I, I didn't expect this from you. Um, like what's wrong with a few good men, right? A few good men's phenomenal, but um, I, I, think it's it's uh it's a movie i i mean it's it's got some good like i think i enjoyed it the first time i watched it and then every time i watch it now i'm just like it's overwritten and that's probably because it's aaron sorkin even though i like i like aaron sorkin i think the west wing is a masterpiece but like i don't know i don't think rob reiner is why that movie's good that's a fair that now okay that i think i will fully agree with you on um, um that and, and and actually that might be the secret sauce of rob reiner movies i like maybe all of those movies that what i like about them has really nothing to do with him well i mean fucking uh prince's bride that's that william goldman is the reason that oh yeah good. and well, the and, actors. i mean misery and misery like the reason yeah. that movie is good is just the, the plot like, setup william goldman is one of the greatest screenwriters of all time uh and yeah he's kind of got like an immaculate record i mean not not really but like he didn't write north so there's that (laughs) yeah i mean listen if you can put on your resume that you did not write north i mean i think that'll get you a hollywood i put it on every resume yeah i mean just so that people know know, yeah just in case um but uh let uh, shifting away from misery uh, yeah what what else besides outside of misery have you been occupying yourself with i mentioned uh at the front of the episode that i watched venom for the first time uh i thought it was fine i don't really have any really there's nothing worth saying about it um although tom hardy's performance is what makes that movie watchable um interesting choices he makes 
Yeah, I would. He's an actor where it's like, I'll just watch. I'll watch you in anything just because yeah. I know at the very least you'll make interesting choices. Yeah. yeah. Um, I rewatched Get Out again, uh, which is just excellent. Um, I infinitely rewatchable. Uh, all right. Um, all right. Let's do this really quickly. Uh, Smackdown drag out. Which wins us or get out? You have to pick one. You have five uh, seconds. Five, four, three. Get out. Okay. Um, I, I would go us. But. So I, I, I had a feeling you would pick that. And, and I was thinking about this last night after I finished watching it, because there are things that us is doing that I like more. It is more like a balls to the wall horror movie than get out is get out is doing a lot more. It has a lot more that it's doing a lot deeper. Um, I think it's more, it's a more important movie. And I find that rewatching get out makes me very happy. I don't know if rewatching us would make me feel the same way, but I thought us was really well-made. I think it get it derails a little bit, but when it is in full horror movie mode, when the doppelgangers are like, like when basically when Elizabeth Moss and her husband, the Tim Heidecker character, oh, get it's attacked. I, it's, I love that scene. Yeah, it's incredible. Phenomenal. So I think you know my hesitation shows you that it, it's a difficult decision because I think Get Out is an objectively better movie, but there's a lot that Us was doing that I thought worked very, very well. I actually okay. I'm glad you said that because I think that's this is a good summation of something we talked about this episode. I would argue that Get Out, probably you're right, is the better film overall. But I would argue that Us has more broad appeal, wouldn't you say? Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I have to think about that, actually. Like I, should, I shouldn't have said yes so quickly. It's, it's hard, but I feel like between the two of them, I feel like Us is, is targeted towards perhaps a, a broader audience. Yes. Yeah. I, would, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. But I, I was thinking, like, I think Get Out is the type of movie that maybe people wouldn't think to initially check out if they just didn't know anything about movies, didn't know anything about that movie beforehand. Like, I think Us is, like, if someone's scrolling, someone doesn't know anything about either movie or their impacts or Jordan Peele or anything. And they're scrolling through and they're looking at plot summaries, like those two-sentence plot summaries. I think more people are clicking on Us than Get Out. Yeah, I would say that's fair. Um. And yeah, so so that's movie wise, video game wise. I've been playing Near Automata. I'm slowly making my way through that. Um, I've been like playing that on and off for a long time. Um, as you and I talked about, uh, it, I have started replaying for I don't know maybe the twelfth time in my life. Castlevania: Circle of the Moon. Ah, fantastic game. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Interesting. I uh, we had we had ourselves a little Nintendo Direct uh, this week. We sure um, did, didn't, didn't we? Um, we're gonna do a little something uh, with that another time. Um, but as a result of that direct, a couple things happened. One, I did immediately buy that Castlevania collection, um, and, yep. and also playing Circle of the Moon. Um, I actually today just beat um, the Necromancer or whatever. Nice. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely like I think two bosses in. Um, and yeah. It's been a while. I haven't played those games since like junior high, I think, or early high school. So um, I do like Harmony of Dissonance the best. Uh, that is the one I replay the most. So I'm excited to revisit that. Um, in addition to that, I've been playing Nino Kuni two, um, which is just sucking, slobbing my my genitals with <laughs> like 
with wow. just just slobbing them with everything I love in a video game. Right? Okay, it's got charming, wonderful characters. Uh, the 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 I the combat is so much faster and more fluid and just generally better than Nino Kuni One. Really, even though I, even though I did like the combat in Nino Kuni One. Um, also, Nino Kuni Two uh, has big Dark Cloud uh, vibes a little bit, um, which also was made by Level Five. That was kind of their first big game for PlayStation Two. I loved, loved, loved Dark Cloud One and Dark Cloud Two, um, including the weird like village building sim elements of those games. Um, so Nino Kuni Two is just like just real, just filleting me and my love, my loves in video games like wow. you couldn't imagine. Um, so been, yeah i've been loving that um and uh yeah that's pretty much it for me but um in terms of next week uh what, well, what are we going to be doing or we're keeping it a secret again that is correct let's, let's, keeping a secret let's keep it a secret but can we at least mention that this will be the end of our summer series yes uh we can and it's gonna be well i mean we if anyone's keeping count Next week, we're going to be talking about a video game that I picked that Aaron had not played. Correct. And it is one of my favorite video games of all time. And I cannot wait to talk about that. Yeah, I'm excited to really buckle down and like dive into it. Um, I've been waiting. Um, and uh, speaking of that Nintendo Direct, uh, which will be the closest thing you get to a hint. Um, I, for, I forgot to tell you the story that uh, Mir Automata made me think of. Oh, yeah. So uh, there's that game um, being published by Square Enix by the Mir Automata director, right? Um, it's called like Voice of Cards. Are you familiar yes, with this? Yes, yes. So the idea is that it is a like very traditional tabletop RPG. Um, I downloaded the demo, which is available on the eShop. Um, I saw that as a news story. I clicked on it, I saw Square Enix, I saw pictures and color, like uh, illustrations that made me think it was Final Fantasy related. I freaked out because I thought it was a like simulated tabletop Final Fantasy, like music card game. Um, and my brain had like a massive like misfire seizure and I immediately pre-ordered it and paid $30. <laughs> and then actually hmm. played the demo and I was like, hmm, it's not that at all, is it? It's actually something completely different. Um, but I was like, this is okay. Um, and I, I'm playing, like I played through full the full demo. Um, it's, it's good. Um, I don't know if it will be worth $30 when it is, when it comes out, but I already bought it. So I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, please do. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but until, until such a time. Yes. Thank you as always, Aaron. Yeah. This has been Game and Watch with Aaron and James. And uh, thanks for listening.